Well, hello, people. Welcome to episode thirty-nine of Misfits. This is where I speak to the rebels, the outliers, and non-conventionals, trying to see things as how they see it and to learn from them. Some of these individuals include the Betty Lee, who did a first solo travel around the world at the age of sixty, being a mom. Taking Soon, who's the architect behind the legendary People's Park Complex, the first multi-story complex in the whole of Singapore. Adrian Pang, Daniel Ong. And a whole lot more. Today on the show, I have a very special guest. His name is Ali Abdul, a YouTuber and a junior doctor in the UK. So his YouTube channel right now has more than 30 million views and 500,000 subscribers. He's also the founder of Six Meds, the world's largest medical exam preparation crash course.、Uh, Ali right now is also holds a doctorate from the Cambridge University. In this conversation, we spoke about. Ali better texted learning techniques. We talk about Anki. We talk about active recall. We also talk about how to choose a doctor. How do you know a good doctor from a great doctor?、Uh, how to grow a YouTube following while having a fifty hours work week doctor's job, and a whole lot more. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with this curious character, Ali Abdul. Perfect. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, let's just get started. While doing my research, actually, I found that、uh, we are both actually into magic. So, what got you into it? Do you have any? Well, I'm not going to tell you to do any tricks right now, so don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you have like any favorite magician? How do you get into it? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, so the, there was a show in the UK called、uh, Pen and Teller Fool Us, which I think they took to the US as well.、Um, and around the time I was 17 years old,、uh, I saw a performance by a magician called Michael Vincent. Uh, and I, yeah, he's 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 a guy in the UK, and it was a it was sort of a a card kind of act where he 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 didn't ask him to select a card or anything. He just sort of did a like a theatrical piece with a deck of cards, kind of making stuff disappear and reappear. And at the end, he kind of sat on the table and kind of did a load of shuffles and stuff. And he had this whole spiel about how magic brings us all together. And then he spread spread the deck, and only the aces were face up. And then he put them like next to each other. And then it turns out that the deck was in full order from ace through to king for every single suit. After all that shuffling he did, and I was just completely mind blown.、Um, and that was the moment where I was like, okay, I want to learn this stuff for myself. And yeah, it, it kind of went from there. What, do you have any、uh, favorite magicians or ma- magic tricks?、Uh, what was your your stick? Are you a cards kind of guy, or you know,、uh, mind reading stuff? Yeah, I'm more of a cards kind of guy, but I've dabbled with a bit of mind reading, a bit of sponge balls. That always gets people.、Uh, I've tried to kind of expand out into coins recently because you know everyone has coins on them, but no one has a deck of cards on them routinely.、Um, and so, magicians that I follow in that regard are. Uh, a lot of the sort of com- commercial ones online, so、uh, like Wayne Wayne Houchin, and then Guy Hollingworth, who's that lawyer from the UK who does a lot of card tricks. I don't know if you're familiar with these guys. No, I have not. I think we we are, we stumble on it from different parts of the world, and our influence are totally different. Because I what where was what yeah I same thing. No, actually, you know what? There was magic shops around in in town, and so you can actually buy tricks. So you you go in and then they'll just do it on thing and then he's like oh do you want to learn this thing it's twenty five dollars and you're just like、uh, I'll think about it <laughs> and then I think、um, the internet was just starting up、uh, at that time so my yeah a couple of、uh, guys that I was、uh, learning from that's this is Gregory Wilson guy have you heard of him oh yeah、cards. I love Gregory Wilson yeah he's amazing he's so yeah. cool yeah the tricks are simple but the whole uh, uh, presentation is killer、um, who else is there that's a ring guy. There's this guy that does his ring trick,、um, yeah, Gary something. But yeah, we'll, we'll、uh, Garrett Thomas. 
Yes, yes. I think it's, it's English. Is he? Or is he American? Uh, I think I, I think he's American, but he's got like the ring ring thing or something like that as his thing, where you know, you yes, 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 ring yes. move and yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh my god, that's funny. So, did you actually continue um, magic, or when when did it stop for you? When was when was the time period? Uh, yeah. So, um, uh, when I was in sort of fi- the final final year of school, uh, I, I started doing it and then volunteering at this kind of care home with it. Uh, and then when I got to university, I performed at a few May balls and parties and things. So for the first three years of university, each kind of summer when the party season would be, I would perform at a few of these of these balls. And that was always really stressful because, you know, having to go up to a group of people and interrupt their conversation and be like, hi, I'm the magician. Do you want to see a magic trick? It, it always felt very weird. But yeah. Do you have a do you have a do you have a favorite trick, though, back, uh, from back then? So uh, it's uh, it's called the uh, um, invisible deck. Yeah, I'm sure you've, ah. you've come across it. No, no, tell me more about it. I think maybe it's just oh, you haven't difference in name. Oh no, wait, yeah, it, may, it might be called something different. So the the idea is that it's it's sort of like a mind reading kind of trick. So you ask people to imagine they've got an invisible deck of cards, and they go through the deck and they're shuffling all the cards up, and they go through the deck and they pick any one card like in their mind, and they turn that card face down, and they put it back in the deck, and then they shuffle the deck again. So overall, they've got this one card that they're thinking of that they haven't said anything about that's face down in this deck of face-up cards. And then you take the deck out and you say, look, what's the card that you were thinking of? And let's say they say the two of diamonds. Then you go through the deck and you find that the only card that's face down is the two of diamonds. And that completely gets them every time. <laughs> that's cool. No, I actually do not know, know that trick. Uh, I know I, I, I probably heard of it before, but I don't think I've practiced it ever. For me, it was just a classic, um, what is that? Uh, what do you call it? But the, the the one card that keep coming up to the top. Oh, the ambitious card. Yeah. Yes, the ambitious card routine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> correct, correct. Uh, well, do you want to also? I think interesting place to start off with. Uh, since we're talking about ga- uh, cards, games, and all that, do you want to riff a little bit about treating life as video game? Yeah, this is something I've been, I've been trying to build uh, an analogy about, and I'm wondering to what extent it holds in, uh, in all in, in all different domains. So, firstly, there's uh, there's a good blog post by a guy called Mark Manson. I don't know if you're familiar with his his stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sato R of um, not giving a f. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's what kind of got him famous. Um, so he's got he's he, he's got a really good blog post where he talks about this idea of life being like a video game and how level one is you're like you know trying to get food and shelter and stuff and level two is when you've done that and now you're trying to sort of find a job and and it's sort of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs but sort of treating it like a video game where level five is, you know, where you're playing the game of, uh, you know, so like leaving a legacy and making a difference in the world and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, so I find that quite interesting. And I've come across a few other domains in which I think the video game analogy works. So, so the guy, um, are, you, are you familiar with the blog Wait But Why? Yes, Tim Urban. Yeah, yeah, Tim Urban. Uh, so he had a really good uh, podcast feature on Invest Like the Best, which is this other podcast. Uh, and in that, he was talking about how he treats life as a video game in, in that whenever he's scared to do something, he tells himself, no, I'm playing, I'm playing Grand Theft Life. That's like the video game that I'm playing. Because he reckoned like, you know, let's say it comes to uh, going up to a pretty girl in a bar and saying hello. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's the whole fear associated with that, which is our kind of 50,000 year old brain saying that, no, this, you, you know, this fear of social rejection actually has lasting consequences, which it did back in caveman days. Um, 
Whereas what, what Tim, Tim Urban tells himself is that, no, this is all part of Grand Theft Life. And if I was a character in a video game, I'd be going up and talking to that girl. And I thought that was a really nice way of thinking about it, that treating our own lives as a video game in that sense. So that's one. And then a second one is, yeah. Go for it. No, I mean, I I'm, I'm just want to put a footnote. Like, where do you, like, where do you came across that? And do you came across it as in, it helped you frame a difficult situation that you were trying to go through? Or you came across it trying to explain a couple of concepts that you want to help your friends get to understand? Uh, yeah, no, I've just been, for the last few years, intrigued by uh, whenever anyone makes an analogy to life being like a game. And so when I, first, when, when I came across this, this idea of Grand Theft Life a few months ago, I immediately wrote it down. I was like, oh, this is, this is a good way of thinking about it. Um, and then like in a, few, in a few other domains. So, for example, when it comes to treating school and university exams, um, uh, some advice that I heard from, from a friend was that it's, it's useful to treat it like a game. Like, you know, this exam is just a game that you're playing with yourself. And if you want, you can like compete with your friends and stuff. But it's it's a very kind of friendly competition. It's like you know, in World of Warcraft, you're trying to see which of your characters gets the highest damage. But really, you're all working together to try and take down this big boss. And that's how I now think of exams as being sort of like defeating a boss in a video game. Very cool, huh? Yeah, very cool. Yeah. So it's just one of those things where I want to build up. I want to try and find more things that fit that analogy, so then I can just sort of use that framing for a lot of a lot of different things. I, I do think that uh, uh, sort of the, way, the, the the game analogy uh, uh, is a good way to sort of let people step back and sort of look at the entire process as different levels and you know break it down into milestones, um, and then you're able to to, to to tell people where they are at. Uh, maybe you're at level three, you know, hey, you're starting a business, you're at level three, but actually here's here's what's going to happen at level ten and level fifty and level eighty, and uh, you, and also. A game analogy have the idea that you can also exit any time. You don't need to play this game if you don't want to. You can change the game. Oh, yeah, you're right. You can exit any time. You don't need to play the game. <laughs> That's a good one. I'm going to write that down. Um, and actually, like, um, on a related note, um, there, was, there was another thing I heard in, in another random podcast. It was, it was this guy who's written a book about how life is like uh, how, how board games are an analogy to life or something like his whole book is based on this and I haven't read the book yet but he was, he was talking on a, on a podcast about this is it finite infinite games um, I don't think it is, it, is finite and infinite games one of those starter books no it's not a starter book it's like a, it's a super short super thin but I cannot get to it it's just too extra for me <laughs> No, no, it's 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 not quite that. It's it's called something like how how life is like video games, or what video games, or, sorry, what board games can teach us about life. Um, but in that, he's he he says something that he he says that we should always think about the victory conditions. So you know how in in board games there are often multiple ways to win. Like with prop, with like proper board games, you can either get the highest number of currency, or you can finish the victory track, or you can get the highest amount of victory points. There's all these different victory conditions, and he says that. In life, we should we we should occasionally stop and think about and and reconsider the victory conditions. Because when you're playing a board game and you're you're just kind of going through it and you're thinking that your strategy is going to be to get the highest number of sheep and that's how you're going to win the board game. Um, but actually, halfway through the game, things might have changed. And if you look at the rules again and you look at the victory conditions, you might realize that actually you can win by a whole taking a whole different path. Um, and his argument is that we should do this with life more often. We should think about what game we're trying to play and whether the victory conditions that once served us. Uh, are still serving us to this day. And you probably also have a lot of people come to you for advice and stuff. I mean, do you have you tried using that 
board game analogy to sort of help people understand where they are at? Yeah, I, I, I actually gave a talk about this like last week where this was sort of like the main, the main theme of my talk. It was to th think about what game you're playing and sort of reconsider the, the victory conditions of it and whether it's really the game you want to be playing. Um, it, was, it was a talk I was giving to some university students and it was in the context of um, the, the game that we play when we're in school is very much the kind of, I want to get good exam results so I can get into a good university type of game. But then once you get into university, by default, you'd still be playing that game. But actually from university, that game doesn't, is, isn't necessarily that helpful depending on what you actually want out of life. Uh, like, you know, for some jobs, they care what you get at university, but for a lot of jobs, they actually don't. And for a lot of things like building an audience or building a business, it really doesn't matter what you get at university. But, you you know, if you didn't stop and think about that, you would just kind of go down this default victory condition of get good grades and therefore win at life type thing. Um, and, yeah, they said afterwards that that analogy resonated. So, I yeah, I enjoyed that. Did they, did they came up to you and ask you questions? Because that's how I see if a talk um, succeeded or not, you know, if like how many people stay back and actually ask questions, right? Yeah, there were, there, there were quite a lot that stayed back just to, to ask questions, to get photos. Yeah, I felt, I felt like a real celebrity. <laughs> cool. Uh, I want to move uh, topics a little bit. I think we're going to go back to the past memento style uh, to talk a little bit about childhood. And it's perfect place because you are at home um, where you grew up. And are you, this, is this a dinner table? Like where you're at? This is... Yeah, this is our dinner table. Well, we've got the microphone what? here, we've got the camera over there. <laughs> Perfect. Well, tell me about the conversations you have on the dinner table when you're growing up. Oh, conversations on the dinner table growing up. That's something I've never, ever thought about. I think, at least thinking about the last few years, a lot of the conversations that I have with my brother are about um, either like startup-y, business-y, tech-type things, or they're about like, you know, really overthinking, socializing with people and like what makes a good social gathering and, you know, what uh, you, uh, discussing different ways to connect with people. Uh, and our mom kind of uh, weighs in on those types of conversations, but she doesn't really weigh in on the tech entrepreneurship type of stuff because she doesn't really have much to, much to go on there. Um, so that's, that's two things that come to mind. And, uh, and also one thing that is... Often when when you're growing up though? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm talking kind of since about the age of 15, 16, when my brother and I were, were, into, were into all this tech stuff. Before that, I really can't remember. I, I have no idea what we used to talk about. It was probably like TV shows and we used to watch like Yu-Gi-Oh! and occasionally like play video games and stuff. So I imagine the conversation was about those, but yeah. <laughs> I've just and is it mainly you and, your you and your brother? Does mom join at the dinner table? Oh yeah, so it's always me, my brother and my mom at the dinner table, when, assuming we're all in the house at the same time. And yeah, although, although recently the conversations have been, have been a lot more like, you know, my mom has this very sort of, in a way, traditionalist worldview where it's like, you know, you want to get a good job, you want to sort of work your way up and do you want to not, not like deviate from the, from the set path. Whereas I suppose mine and my brother's attitudes is much more kind of the modern way of thinking, which is that, well, you know, what does a job mean anyway? And I want to find something that fulfills me and I want to build a portfolio career and I want to have a personal brand and, and all that sort of stuff. So that's what a lot of the a lot of the, the discussion slash argument around the, the dinner table is these days. Is, have you managed to change your mom's mind otherwise? I think she's gotten more around to the idea, um, and she understands that it's it's going to happen regardless of what she says. So I think she's, yeah, I think I think I think she's on board with it now. 
And 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 I mean, because you have moved from a couple of places before you landed up over in the UK, right? Um, grew up originally from Pakistan, and then um, and then and then you moved, and then came back to Pakistan again because mom needs to take an exam, and then you moved down here to the UK. Do you think that like sort of exposing yourself to this all these different cultures uh, while growing up have sort of helped you um, in you know starting businesses or you as a doctor? Um, I'm not sure. So I was very young when I was kind of exposed to all these different cultures, and I guess until coming to the UK. I didn't really think anything of it, really. I, I, I didn't even appreciate that, oh, you know, we're living in South Africa. This is novel because it's just, it's just what you did. So I think it would be easy to kind of retrofit the narrative and say that sort of understanding these different cultures helped me get some kind of insight into business. But honestly, I, I wasn't thinking about it that hard. I was just like, you know, I just want to go home and watch Pokemon with, with, with my friend and kind of <laughs> have fun at school. Um, so... I'm sure, I, I'm sure subconsciously maybe it did, but it's not something that I would, I would ever give credit for any kind of entrepreneurial insights. Fair. And, and, and when you're young also, I noticed that you have actually pretty good grades while researching. Um, do you think that, you know, when's the first time you remember you had to sweat uh, to study? Like actually really, because there's some people who are just naturally gifted, right? They just understand things faster, quicker, or this is naturally inclined to be curious. So, so I, then the second part of the question is that how much will you attribute like your grades to you know your genetic makeup versus you your learning techniques or process? Okay, so I feel like I had to sweat a fair bit um, in secondary school uh, or high school, how, how, however you call it. Um, but I think the reason I, I had to sweat a fair bit is because. I'd come into the school sort of ranked number one in the 11 plus, which is this exam that you take. And then like my whole identity was like for those like five years of school, the, end of the first five years of school was to maintain that position. So every, every year I was really trying hard to rank number one again. And that was a different sort of game to just trying to pass the exams or, or whatever. So I, I had to sweat a fair bit to basic, basically compete against my best friends to see which of us can get that slightly slight edge over the other one. Um, so that was... That was difficult, but it was it was fun. I, I used to enjoy it. Um, and then, so in my in my third year of med school, I studied psychology, and one of my one of my favorite subjects was intelligence. And this was a big a big part of the of the of the discussion in the essays that I wrote. Like, to what extent is firstly is IQ a valid measure of intelligence, and secondly, assuming that IQ is the best measure of intelligence that we have, to what extent is that genetic, and to what extent is that environmental? And it seems like actually, like uh, interestingly. It was. It seemed to be mostly mostly genetic, in that your intelligence seems to be mostly determined by your genetic potential, provided your environment is not sort of actually actively damaging. Um, and my environment certainly wasn't actively damaging. And my mum like obviously placed a big emphasis on education and stuff. And so I really can't take credit for anything because it was all just. I feel like it was all just in the genes and uh, sort of a not uh, in and in, in having a supportive enough environment that was not kind of. You know, actively, if we were in poverty or had like chronic diseases or things like that, that would have made a difference. But, you know, the environment was was good enough to let the genes kind of do their thing. So I really have no no credit at all in that on that front. Yeah. And 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 like right now, you're, you know, you, but you also have sort of gone through a lot of learn, different learning techniques and key so on and so forth. Um, 
would you say those help and you know to what degree it helps so i mean like if you say well iq is like zero to 80 and then the anki is like from the from the 80 to 100 like where you are your fullest potential mm. i think the anki thing so uh, i only discovered anki in in medical school so about like eight years ago which is still quite a while ago um and i think what what these techniques did is that they helped me study more efficiently which meant that i could do more things with my time um so even even with those techniques, I was never really kind of top of the class except for one one time in one exam, which I still kind of uh, uh, sort of, uh, what's the word? I, I, I sort of take advantage of it to this day. I, I made a video called How I Ranked First at Cambridge University. But obviously I didn't really rank first. It was just like one exam and I got one, one prize, which I went first with someone else. But I, I, think, I think all these techniques helped me study efficiently, which meant that I could do other things with my time, like, you know, set up the business or set up the YouTube channel. Um, but they weren't like, I think had I, had I put more time into it, then maybe I would have had better exam results, but that wasn't the game that I was playing. And so, so you would, would you say that only in med school that you have sort of exposed yourself to the different learning techniques and before then it was just hardcore cramming it in your head? Yeah. Before then, to be honest, you could just get by, by, you know, memorizing all the mark schemes to the exam papers and using a revision guide. And that's all you needed to do. So I didn't really need to use anything sophisticated for that other than just to memorize the mark scheme. But then when I got to university, that was no longer a, a viable option. What other, what other learning techniques have you uh, came across and, and how has, what are you using now and so what the evolution of what you drop and what um, you, you continue to, to keep using or, or, or still experimenting on? Yeah, so the main one is, uh, so the main two are active recall and, and spaced repetition. So active recall is uh, basically testing ourselves. And the more we test ourselves, the more we retain, uh, which sort of goes contrary to what we think is that we think that if I read it again, then it'll come into my brain. But actually, it's the, uh, the process of trying to take it out of your brain again that strengthens all the neural connections and stuff like that. So active recall is probably the most important one. And the second one is, is spaced repetition, uh, which is, a, you know, there's this idea called the forgetting curve, which is that when you learn something, you will forget it like exponentially over time. So like you might read something one day and then two days later, you've completely forgotten it. But the more you repeat it at kind of spaced out intervals, the more you interrupt the forgetting curve. And so you would repeat a topic, let's say on day one and then on day three and then one week later and then one month later. And you'll find that by repeating it at spaced intervals, the information sticks and it becomes part of the long-term memory. So those are, I'd say, the, the two kind of fundamental components of it. Um, but then in terms of kind of stuff that's changed for me, one, one thing that I've always uh, struggled to find an optimal way of doing is to take notes. Because like in the first year of med school, it's like, it's like school. You know, you go to your lectures and then you take notes from your lectures and you kind of do that. And then you realize after a while that, hang on, I'm spending like two hours taking notes from this lecture and what's the point? Like, am I learning anything by taking these notes? Uh, and the research says that summarizing stuff with a book open is not very effective. And then so, but it, it still feels very weird to just not take any notes at all. And sort of me and all, all of my friends had this evolution throughout medical school where we all started off taking copious notes. And then by the end of it, we pra practically like didn't take any notes at all because we knew that there were all sorts of, you know, we knew there were all sorts of resources out there, especially for medicine. There's so many re revision guides and things on the internet that taking notes itself is a somewhat pointless activity. Uh, so I think that was the interesting evolution that happened over time. So instead of taking notes, what, what do you do? You just do um, the active recall and spatial repetition on the resources and the notes you find online. So what it is? Yeah. So one thing I've started doing that I think is I think is 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 the method that I'll continue using is to just write questions. 
So instead of writing notes, just like write questions. So, you know, what are the five causes of thyroid cancer or something like that? And not even bothering to write the answer to that because writing the answer is a waste of time because whatever. And then when I look through my notes, I see the question and I have to physically force myself to answer the question. And if I can't answer it, then it's, I can just Google it or I can just go back to the notes and with control F because it's so easy to find answers in lecture notes these days that I don't think it's worth the time to try and actually write the answers down because then you'll end up writing Q&As for like the whole, the whole of medicine, which is unsustainable. So you just write the question. And that's very interesting. Oh, I never knew about that. Yeah, so just writing questions. That's good, actually. Yeah, I've, I've, got, a, I've, I've got a friend who, who did this when he was in his first year. So uh, I, I gave a talk about this very thing in like 2015 because this was when like, I was interested in the topic. Uh, and a friend of mine who was a first-year medical student came to that talk. And after that talk, which was all about active recall and spaced repetition, he literally just wrote down questions. So for every subject, he had a list of like a thousand questions, just one line of questions that he wrote for himself. Uh, and he would just kind of go, his revision would be going through and answering these questions in his head and then highlighting the ones he didn't know and looking, looking them up. And he ended up ranking second in the year uh, just off learning, j- j- like not writing any notes, just writing questions for himself. And so I think that is proof that the method sort of works if you can apply it properly. Yeah. And also I saw in one of the videos that you actually also write uh, chapter notes uh, of like the branch of how you learn certain topics. Is there a name for that technique? Or maybe you also want to explain a little bit on that. How does that fit into the whole learning process? Yeah. So uh, I think it's useful to have a, to write down a broad outline of the chapter. So let's say we're studying, I don't know, the heart. The heart is a big topic and there's like 20 different chapters within that topic. So I find it helpful to just sort of uh, like write write all those twenty chapters down, and then within them I'll write my questions for each for each chapter. So you know I might, I might have a topic on the anatomy of the heart, and then that within that there would be questions like you know where do the where does the right coronary artery come from, or you know what is the left atrial appendage, and and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, but I find it helpful to put it under the categories because then in my head I know like I I can sort of navigate through the subject in my mind. Whereas if I just had a mess of uh, sort of randomized questions, which is partly why I don't like flashcards as much because flashcards inherently kind of randomize the order of stuff. If it's completely randomized, then it's very easy to focus on the details and forget about the bigger picture. Yeah, that's right. And also I, I do feel that um, um, that that sort of content page methodology helps you sort of understand the thing better and understand how things relate to each other, which is at the core of it is, is understanding because you, 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 yeah, Google is there to help you remember the fine details, but understanding that is what, you know, we need to do. Huh. Okay. Anything else that you want, you want to add on, on, on that? So basically the, um, the, the, the tree, the tree mapping technique plus active recall plus space repetition. That's kind of it. Huh? Yeah. I think, I think, I think those are the main ones. And, uh, the other one that people say, uh, in sort of the evidence based is, uh, interleaving which is the idea that you want to not just focus on one topic for a whole day, but you want to sort of do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and sort of interleave them, which makes your brain have to work a little bit harder to retain everything, and that actually strengthens the, the connections. And also that sort of ties in really nicely with space repetition as well, too. Yeah, exactly. So rather than thinking, you know, on this one day, I'm just going to study the heart, you think, okay, on this day, I'm going to do the heart in this, I'm going to do that in anatomy, I'm going to do that in biochemistry, and I'm going to mix it up a little bit. Okay, so we're going to move on a little bit about how a layman could understand and learn about his own medical condition. So, and it's re- really more a selfish question, question than anything. So here's the context, yeah? Um, 
uh, I have a hand uh, problem. And then, you know, I went to the hand doctor and then, and then it went circle and circle. Uh, we did an x-ray and then we thought it was a nerve impingement on the neck. So we did an MRI and then we thought it was an, uh, a nerve conductivity issue. So we did like conductivity tests and then we did painkillers and then we, we did physio. And then this is like a, in a stretch of like six to eight months. And then, then we did an x-ray again in the hand. I don't know why we didn't do it in the first place. Then we, we thought, Oh, look at the, the bone is fusing together and, you know, that might be the, the cause. And then we did a blood test and then now the conclusion or the, the hypothesis is that there's a, a arthritis problem. So, so, the, so we, I, I, we, I went on this like round and round, merry-go-round over here and, and trusting the doctor when I first started. And as time goes by and the wrong diagnosis goes by, I was just like, I would not like to trust you more. So, I mean, so that, that aside, but more so the question is, how could sort of one, like if you would have the same problem yourself, uh, uh, how would you go about sort of solving it? And what are the resources, what are the methodology, you'll go about trying to understand it and, and, and uh, take things, at least come out of a second opinion for yourself. I think my first line would probably be Google uh, and trying to find just the whatever generic resources are out there. So there would be like, NHS UK, which is, gives you some information for patients. There would be like Medline, which is a US based, or Medscape, or eMedica, like all the all these other sort of websites. That Chris, say again. So NHS NHS UK Medline. What's the last one? Uh, Medscape. Medscape. Yeah, got so it. Those would probably come up in the Google results, and that would be that would be like my first portal call, just to get a generalized understanding of what's going on. Once I've got a diagnosis, then at that point, I can start looking at things like official guidelines. So uh, the NICE guidelines, NICE, which is a UK organization, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, and they publish kind of official guidelines on the treatment of all sorts of conditions, like, you know, step one, do this, step two, do that. But it also gives you the evidence base behind it. Like they, they come together with these very comprehensive documents. So I would use the NICE guidelines. And there are also other resources. There's a website called UpToDate. Dot com and a website called BMJ Best Practice, which is the British Medical Journal Best Practice. And that gives you sort of a condensation of the guidelines, which would use some stuff from the NICE guidelines, but would also take stuff from other specific guideline organizations. So, for example, if it's a hand problem, then maybe the NICE guidelines would have something about it. But then BSSH, which is the British Society for the Surgery of the Hand, or BAPRAS, which is the British Association of Plastic Surgeons, they might have published their own guideline about how to deal with this nerve impingement in the hand or something like that. So I'd be able to kind of look through those and sort of the more, the further along this path you go, the more uh, jargony and medically the terminology gets. But that's why I would start with Google just to get a brief sort of an overview and then worry about kind of these specific guidelines. And then once you've exhausted the guidelines and you're thinking, okay, this is kind of the idea, then you can follow up the references from the guidelines where it references the original papers where these, that they did the studies that these things came out of. And that would be like my final port of call. So starting with Google, then moving on to the official guidelines and then moving on to the papers themselves and trying to understand if there is something, something new in the research that you can find online that hasn't yet been reflected in the guidelines because often the guidelines take months, if not years, to update. So there's a possibility. And so some of the patients that we get will come in with a printout of a paper and say, oh, the latest Cochrane review sh- showed that blah, 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 blah. And then you think, okay, right. Um, and then you kind of have a look through the paper and, and see whether that, whether that one paper alone justifies a change in your practice. It probably doesn't because it's never just one paper that leads to a change in, in stuff going on. But 
it, it does give you more options that you can you can research about. Mm. And do you and do you then uh, research or Google the word of the diagnosis uh, into Google, or do you actually just Google the symptoms? Uh, if you've got a diagnosis, I'd probably start with that because googling the symptoms may not may lead to lots and lots of other things. Like for example, you know, pain in the hand. There's like 500 different causes of that. Uh, and it's it's quite hard to actually drill symptoms into a diagnosis. But once you've got a diagnosis, then at that point you can find out much more about it and see if actually feasibly does this fit my symptoms and could this be what's going on. Got it. Is there any um, um, cheap alternative for people to get second opinion in the UK? How's the app sort of landscape, you know, where you could get a doctor on the app and sort of like talk through to get a second opinion? Or do you, like, because I, I also know that in the UK is subsidized, right? So it's probably really slow for you to, you know, as a patient to sort of get to a specialist. And, and the thing for me was that a specialist would diagnose what a specialist in that category know of. And versus like, say, for example, my, my problem would be an arteritis problem. And so that would be the last thing on this list to sort of diagnose. So I wonder if there's a way to sort of expedite it. Yeah, I mean, in the UK, if you have money, you can just go to private to a private doctor and that'll be sorted Fair? in a few days. <laughs> um, if you don't have money then, or, or, or if you don't want to spend the money, then everyone in the NHS, the National Health Service, every, every patient is entitled to a second opinion. So if they've seen a doctor and they're, they're, they don't like the diagnosis or, or, or just want a second opinion, then it's the doctor's responsibility to refer them on, as far as I know, to get a second opinion from someone else. But would that be a month later? Uh, it might be a month later or, you know, eight, eight a month later, depending on the waiting list. So, yeah, you do have to suffer the, the whole waiting list problem. And there are startups and stuff trying to do the whole telephone consultations and sort of finding a doctor through an app. But it hasn't quite taken off. It's mostly at, at the moment still in general practice that people can do that. So there's a company called Babylon Health that has like sort of teleconsultations with GPs, general practitioners. Um, but as far as I know, they it's not a very built out network for really specialist stuff. So you'd either have to sort of do it on the NHS, which would involve waiting a long time, or you'd spend the money and go private. What about medication stuff? Is there any website that you trust to uh, learn more about certain uh, medication? Uh, yes. So the one that we always use is the BNF, the British National Formulary. Uh, and they've got an app and they've got a website and you can search for any drug on there and it gives you the dosage, the side effects, the contraindications. So people that you shouldn't give the medication to. And that's usually the first port of call. And then if you need more information, then doing, doing a Google search of that medication or doing a search of the literature to find the papers that are testing that medication, that could be an option if you wanted to. And would you say that that is sort of layman enough or layman to understand or that's like a doctor's version of? Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a doctor's version of the drug. Um, if you, normally, if you Google any drug, you, you will find that like the first two or three results will be layman friendly. It'll, there are a few US websites. Uh, there's like drugs.co.uk. You, you know, there's a few layman friendly websites that have the information, um, but it won't be in, in, in as much detail as you would get in more kind of doctor focused resources. Got so, it. Because also sometimes. I, I, I was going to ask so, what's the ultimate diagnosis for you? And like, what's, what's been the story of that since, since you've been diagnosed? Oh, um, so it seems like a rheumatoid arthritis case, but then the uh, spongloarthritis is the exact uh, uh, diagnose. Um, and then I'm on acoxia, metatrixics, and foliaxic. Um, and then um, it has helped a lot. But then, like, the, the, the core, I'm sus- it doesn't fully help, 
because there, there are times where it came, came back. And, but I'm suspecting because of the long-term long uh, uh, in-usage of the hand, the muscles deteriorate. So when I'm like, okay, I got excited and I go back on the, the scooter or the, so then maybe too much of that, it's called plus typing and all that is causing. So I need to go on a physio program to strengthen it. But that's again, is my diagnosis, right? The doctor didn't tell me and, and yeah. Yeah, I've, ne- I've never actually met someone who's got, who's got like a, a spondyloarthritis. I think like my mum thinks she has rheumatoid arthritis, but I'm, I'm a bit skeptical. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't really know what kind of effect it has on people's lives, but clearly this is, this is having a big impact on you. Well, I mean, it's, it's just, the, it's just the hand and, and, and the wrist, right? Cause you, you know, you need the hand to do almost anything. And, uh, I mean, I, I can, I can still type, but it's just, uh, if you go on a motorbike, when you go on a scooter, you got to do, you got to ref. So uh, I do enjoy getting on bikes. So, uh, that, <laughs> that, that sucks. Um, but yeah, but other than that, I don't think that's uh, too much of a big impact. So, so that's that. Um, do you do you as a doctor? How will you separate like a good GP versus a great GP? So there's a few like cliches that come to mind. Uh, there's one that goes along the lines that of uh, the good doctor treats the disease, the great doctor treats the patient, and I think there's definitely an element of that. Um, how will you test for that, though? How will you know? How, how would you know when you see it? I think the, in, in, in terms of communication skills, like there are some doctors that would focus a lot on what, what the problem is. And then there are some that would focus on what the problem is, but would also think about what the effect on the patient's life is and what the patient thinks the problem is and what their concerns are. Uh, and in sort of the medical lingo, we call that I, I, ICE, I-C-E, ideas, concerns, and expectations. Uh, and I think the doctors that I've seen that sort of make an active effort to think about that stuff, I would say are at least patients are happier with them and therefore more likely to kind of be compliant with their treatment than the doctors that just focus on the problem. But it's also very easy to say that, but sort of within, within the confines of the system, when you've got 10 minutes for a consultation and you've got a whole waiting room of people to see, you often really can't dig down into people's life story and figure out what trauma they had in childhood that's led to their perception of pain like that you would just want to solve what you can right now and hopefully refer them to a pain specialist who might be able to have these more in-depth, in-depth discussions. So I, I would be a bit uncomfortable sort of being like, oh yeah, a, good doc- a great doctor is one who focuses on the patient because every doctor is trying to be good. Um, and a lot of times it's, it's a system that means that they're not able to be rather than because the doctor themselves is, is, is not a good doctor. Other than that, is there anything else um, that, you know, because you can always ask for a second opinion and change a doctor, right? So, like, would you... I mean, for me, myself, I would sort of, like, look at... If you tell me my diagnosis without telling me the analysis, I'm not so comfortable with that, right? So that's one telltale sign that I have. Are there anything, like... So you know when you, when you see someone good, you can recognize as someone good? Um... I feel it is it is mostly from the communication skills aspect of it. So, like for you, uh, like a great doctor would would speak to you and re- and ask you or realize that you're quite an analytical person and therefore would tailor the amount of information they give based on what you want to know. Uh, whereas someone who's not thinking about that might just you know, as you said, just give you a diagnosis and say, "All right, go on your way." So, I think that probably be the main the main difference between the two. But then, I think I think this idea of like a good doctor versus great doctor is also 
is also somewhat possibly problematic from like as a as a doctor because I, I remember in med school we had this series uh, of lectures called how to be a successful doctor and that was a new pilot that they were trying out which was all about things like work-life balance and you know how you don't necessarily have to go to the top and like sort of uh, the more sort of feelingsy side of, of medicine which is something we didn't really get talked to which is something that didn't really get talked about too much uh, but one thing that one of the doctors said who I really respected was that um, try and like don't try and be a great doctor try and be a good doctor because in trying to be a great doctor often there there's all sorts of baggage that comes with a, with the phrase great doctor like you know ego and competition and, and all this sort of stuff whereas a good doctor is one who cares about the patient and just wants to wants to make a difference and make a difference to the patient's lives Whereas a great doctor we think more as oh this is an eminent professor and they've done loads of research and this that and the other but maybe not necessarily have the greatest communication skills so since hearing that i've tried to kind of remove this concept of like good versus great doctor and sort of for me all i'm trying to do is i'm trying to be a good doctor i'm not trying to be a great doctor because i think yeah i i, just, I feel like un- uncomfortable with the phrasing of that uh, but so i don't know if that answers your question but yeah it it, it doesn't uh but it gives some food for thought um hmm maybe let me let me try to rephrase it for you um if you are looking if you have a problem yourself right and then you are going into surgery, what, and you have this extra layer of information that you can get, right? Because you're a doctor and you're plugged in the system. And then you can get to choose different surgeons to treat you. What sort of information would you seek out um, to determine who you want to uh, uh, work on you? And that is, of course, you, you, have the, you have an extra, I mean, I don't know the UK system that well, but at least you could, if you, you hit on a bad one, you could, you know, move on. You try a different one. And also, let me just give you another, some context over here. Uh, I was at my physio. Uh, uh, and and, and I, I also know a radiologist over at the, the, the hospital. And the radiologist sort of, like, recommended me to a, a back surgeon, a, a back specialist, right? And then I was just, like, running by the, the name to the physio as I was having consult with her. And she's like, Ugh. I was like, oh. Well, what's up? And, and I mean, offhandedly, she, she told me um, I would not go with that person because I'm at the tail end of, what, uh, of, of, of his diagnosis. And he said, uh, don't, uh, uh, and, and she put it in, her words is, don't look for the, the surgeon with scalpel, uh, scalpel f- trigger, trigger happy? Trigger happy, yes. Yeah, so so that's the the context. So I'm just like, whoa, okay, well, well, a radiologist tell me a different thing, and a physio tell me a different thing. At least I would look at it more closely now before I ask for that doctor, right? But here's more context. But here, go go ahead. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I think if I were if I were a patient and, and I had a problem like that, and it was a case that I was going to a private specialist because in the NHS, you, in a way you can't really shop around for the surgeon who's going to do your operation. Sure, it might, it might be the consultant, but it might, it might be the registrar or something, and there's not a lot you can do about it because it's how the, how the system works. But if I was kind of shopping around for a doctor privately, I would be doing things like, you know, Googling them and looking at their reviews and looking at their publications and see how prolific are they in publishing research. And, uh, you know, if I could find someone who's been treated by them or, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, okay, then, research. Like, even, even, yeah. but, then, but then even something like research is a very it's not necessarily correlated with how good the doctor is surgery-wise because a lot of the time to get papers under your name, you're either spending lots of time in a lab, depending on what the, what the research is, 
or you just happen to be head of a department and therefore every paper that gets published, it gets put under your name by default. So uh, it's, it's one of those, one of those um, points that may not necessarily actually correlate with the goodness of, of, of the doctor. Um, but yeah, I think I just kind of do, do a bit of Googling, try and get some patient stories and see if I can speak to other people that work with them. Because as you as you've noticed, there is this sort of extra layer of information that you get that would never, it would never be public information that, you know, this physio is saying that this, this surgeon is, is, is too scalpel happy. That's not public information, but if you can ask the right people, you might get to know, ah, okay, maybe I'll go to him as my final option because I know he's going to want to operate on me. Whereas maybe I want, you know, non-surgical treatments to begin with. So it's hard to say. Really. And that's just a philosophy uh, uh, base uh, sort of like, uh, do you, uh, uh, should you firstly think of non-invasive treatment first or do you want to go for invasive that's more a personal philosophy and then you choose a doctor after, after you have yourself personal ideas what you want sort of would you say so? Uh, no I don't know I think uh, most doctors would also say that you know st- start with the non-invasive stuff first and if it doesn't work then you can worry about the operation you know we, th- we think of like conservative medical and surgical options and we always kind of start with conservative and medical and then surgical is like a last resort so yeah. No, but because now, now, right now, there is two conflicting information, right? Because the radiologist recommend this person and the physio is like, uh-uh, I would not send my mom to him. How would you then, talk, like, you know, re- reconcile? Because the radiologist is a doctor and it's probably his mate. Uh, whereas the physio is the one who sees the actual patients and spends much, much more time talking to the patients as a result of the surgery. And the physio will therefore be plugged into what the patient thinks about this doctor. Whereas the radiologist is, you know, it's his mate, therefore he's going to recommend him. So I would personally go more by what the physio says than what the radiologist says. Interesting. So you just saw also incentive, uh, incentive alignment there. It's choosing who to listen to. Too. I think let's, uh, shall we uh, switch gear a little bit? <laughs> Talking about some, other than you being doctor, we want to talk about, you're also quite the entrepreneur, yeah? Uh, yeah, I like to think so. <laughs> Six meds, uh, and among one of the largest medical exam crash course in the world. So, did you always knew you were an entrepreneur? Um, I first uh, first became introduced to the word entrepreneur when I was like twelve years old in secondary school. I had a friend called James who was like big into this stuff, and he'd read a bit about it, and he was like, "Yeah, I want to be an entrepreneur." And so that word was kind of in in, in my mind, and then. Around, around the same time, I happened to start learning coding and started doing freelance web design and stuff. And therefore, you know, as a natural extension of that, every year we just tried, and tried to create some businesses. And I don't, I don't think I really thought of myself as an entrepreneur because I thought the word itself was quite pretentious. Um, but I just wanted to, I, I was just desperate to make money online, basically. That was like my whole, <laughs> my whole thing in secondary school. And I suppose when you do that enough, eventually you become what people call an entrepreneur. Right, right, right. And, and when would you say is your, uh, will you say SixMed is your first success? Yeah, I think SixMed was the first actual, actual successful business that made any, any amount of money. Uh, before that, there were about like four or five other fail, failed businesses. But I, I won't really call them failure. Failure is because they're all learning opportunities and, you know, I wasn't that serious about them. But hey, yeah. <laughs> well, what did you, what I think, I think let's, let's, I think it's interesting to go through them a little bit and like, what did you learn from, from each of them? Yeah, so the first one was something called UIA Academy. So uh, UIA stands for United Intelligence Agency. Um, and bear with me, I was like 12 at the time. So me and my friends... It could still be a business. Me, me and, yeah, exactly. 
So me and my friends would all read the Cherub books and the Alex Ryder books. I don't know if you're familiar with them. No, no. Oh, but these were books all about, they were sort of, uh, sort of uh, British based. Um, it was about these like organizations that recruits kids to become like spies because kids can sneak into places where the adults can't go and they would like do training and train them up to be. The movie yeah. about that, no? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Spike is, Spike is. Oh, Spy Kids, yeah, yeah. It's sort of, sort of like Spy Kids, but a bit, a bit cooler than that. <laughs> so, <laughs> at least that's what we thought. So there was the, the, the Cherub books, Alex Ryder books, so, sort of like Spy Kids. And so me and, and my friends were really into this sort of stuff. So we, we thought, hey, why don't we make a website and like an agency to recruit other kids who are interested in this sort of stuff? And then we can teach them things like lockpicking and martial arts and stuff like that. And at the time, this was when forums were a big deal. So we were like, oh, we can have an online forum and we can, you know, people can share their expertise and we can teach them. So that was, that was one business that completely failed. We just started making a website and realized that actually making a website in 2006 is actually kind of hard. And it's not as easy as, you know, as, as it is today. So we're like, okay, so, so, so that was one idea. Then, I, then me and my friends started playing this random game online called Kings of Chaos, which was like a text-based role-playing game. So it's like you had your army and then you would sort of every day you'd get more units and then you'd buy reinforcements for your castle, like, you know, a portcullis and like a, you know, turret and all, all this stuff. And then you would have fights with other people where it was just like text based. It was like, you know, I click the button to attack and then you'd be like, blah, 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 blah. You've won. You've won a million gold. Great. I can buy a black powder missile with that money now. Um, so as I was playing this game, I was sort of getting into coding and I realized that every, every page on this website ended with .php. It was like index.php or you know, armory.php. And I was like, oh, okay, what's this PHP thing? So then I started reading about that and that's this kind of server-side coding language. Um, and so I started learning PHP with the intention of making a game similar to Kings of Chaos. So I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to make the next Kings of Chaos. It's going to be a you know, text-based role-playing game. And after a few months of really working hard at this, I realized that actually this is also a lot harder than I thought it would be. Uh, like it was just way, way too difficult. And I, I, I had no knowledge of how difficult it would be, which is why I kind of started down this path. So that was business number two that completely failed. Um, you know, this idea of, of, of creating a game. And then sort of alongside this, I'd say business number three, which was I, start, I, I set up my own, like, you know, in inverted commas, web design agency. Uh, so I found these websites like uh, rentacoder.com where as a freelancer, you could bid and do projects. So some businessman would say, hey, I need a website designed for my business. And lots of people would say, oh, well, I'll do it for $50. I'll do it for $20. And because I was a kid and 13 at the time, I would kind of undercut everyone on pricing, except people in India who somehow were also charging the same, you know, $3 an hour. Um, and so I got a few of these projects. And so I, you know, made, I don't know, a few hundred dollars over the course of a few years, just doing a little bit of small websites for people. Um, so sometimes I took on projects yeah, well, sometimes I took on projects that were just way too big and would spend sort of you know, hundreds of hours on them and then they would just not go anywhere and I'd make like $200 at the end of it just in return for my efforts. And, you know, that was a very inefficient way of making money, but uh, that was something that sort of went alongside this. And then, and then so that was business number three. Then business number four was a website called uh, Console Gateway. I remember this. So... I don't know if, you, if you've seen on the internet, like back in the day, you used to get those banner ads that were like, shoot the duck and get a free iPhone or a free Xbox because iPhone wasn't around back in the day. Yeah. So I basically made one of those. And, and, and the way those sites work is that you sign up to the, the website and then you sign up for a free trial of like Blockbuster films or, you know, something at the time. Uh, and then Blockbuster is as an affiliate partner would pay the website, I don't know, $15 per sign up. And then 
as the user, if you can recruit like 20 of your friends to also sign up to Blockbuster, then the website makes $300 and therefore I give you an Xbox 360 that's worth 250 and sort of pocket the difference. So it's sort of like, it's, it's, it's almost like a pyramid scheme in that you're recruiting people with the promise that they're then going to recruit other people, but you're getting this money via the affiliate partners and therefore can afford buying this Xbox. So that was like, a, you know, one iteration of this. It's pretty elaborate, yeah. And at the time, you know, I, I knew enough about coding to actually build this. So I spent, I spent ages kind of building it out and doing, doing the design. And I've been trying to find my old Photoshop files from back in the day because, you know, I, I think it would be funny to look back on what I thought was good design back then. And then that transformed into something else called IZOOL, I-Z-O-O-L-E, which was around the time that the iPhone was starting to become popular. So we're like, oh, let's, start, let's put the word I at the start of stuff. Um, and that was... That's one, the, the shoot the oh, back no, one. Abs- ab- ab- absolutely none. But then IZOOL was basically the same thing, just a little bit sort of... Le- it, 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 was, it was more about gadgets in general and less about consoles. Because at the time, you know, the iPhone 4 was like, you know, all the craze. And then Izul actually made 50, 50 pounds. Like this was the first time I've made money online off like a non-freelancey stuff. Because basically like a friend of mine uh, signed up to a free trial of Love Film, which was the DVD rental service at the time. And he also signed up, he signed up for four free trials by using his like three sisters. So him and his three sisters, he took their, their debit cards and signed up for a free trial of Love Film times four. And I made 12 pound 50 for each one. And so one day uh, my mum called me and she said, why do, you have, why do you have a check in the mail? And I was like, what, I've got a check in the mail? She was like, yeah, it's a check for 50 pounds from like a trade doubler or something like that. And I was like, oh my God, I've made money online. And that was like my first experience of sort of making money that wasn't directly tied to my freelance work. And that like was like mind blown. But then, you know, a, a few weeks into this, Love Film had shut down their affiliate program and Blockbuster was going out of business. And so like, there were no viable options to actually get people to sign up to a free trial of because the other things were like, oh, if you, if you sign up to BT Broadband, then you'll get 20 pounds. But getting a 12-year-old to sign up to BT Broadband for the household is a, you know, a big sell. It's really, it's really hard to do. Whereas getting a 12-year-old to sign up for a free trial of a DVD service that they can then cancel, it's a lot easier. So that sort of put, put us out of business. But by that time, I'd made 50 quid, so I was super happy. And it's just you, this last one? This last one was pretty much just me, yeah. I think I, I'd, recruited, I'd recruited my friend James, but his, like every year he, he and I were sort of in partnership for this stuff. But he didn't know anything about coding, so he would just be like the hype man. He'd be like, oh yeah, we can do this and do this and really dream big into the future, but really we were struggling with the present. <laughs> that sounds great. Wait, and, then, when, and then this last one, you're right about like, what, when did med school really, or you're just about entering? No, I think this last one when I was about 16. Um... And then, and then sort of after that, I dabbled with a few things, but I didn't really focus on too much businessy things then. It was mostly um, uh, kind of doing my exams and I was big, big on World of Warcraft. So that kind of took over my life. I see. But you were still making money through the websites and uh, while you were doing Oh no, at, the, at, at, at this time, I wasn't making any money at all through the websites. I was, you know, doing maths teaching on the side and that would make me a bit of money. Oh, so you just give up the whole like web, uh, web design thing, coding thing. Yeah, like after these, after these like big projects that failed, I, I realized that actually, you know, probably prob- probably really isn't worth the time to work on other people's stuff. <laughs> That's so funny. Thanks, man. Thanks for sharing that. That's so cool. And I think um, also just looking from the outside, since you're, you're just such a happy person, um, do you? I mean, right? Do you actually suffer from any well dark times? Uh, very rarely. I'm 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 very fortunate that way. Like. 
I can count on like one hand the number of times I've been sad in the last like 12 months or something. Um, and I think that's just, yeah. Uh, I don't know why that is. I feel like a big part of it is just like a genetic predisposition to not really caring about most things. Plus also I've been reading a lot about like stoicism and I've, I've been reading about, you know, this happiness stuff since like the age of 15. So I feel like some of that has probably bled in, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's just a possibly an innate personality thing. And, you know, thankfully in my, in my life, I haven't really had any major setbacks in terms of anything really. Like I haven't had any, any problems with my family or problems with my professional life or school or anything like that. So it's, it's felt like very easy sailing. So I don't know. I've, I've, I'm very fortunate in that sense. How about you? I am too happy too. Yeah. Actually, in fact, sometimes I, I am too happy that I get, I, people don't understand me or I couldn't connect with people. What do you mean? Well, I, I just remember myself like during the 9-11. I was like, oh, well, I guess people dying. Well, hmm. That's great. Yeah. Life goes on. And, and I remember a whole bunch of people giving me, oh, you, you are such heartless person. I was just like, oh, interesting. Oh, right. So on that note, there was a really interesting article that I read this week that a friend of mine sent me. It was about this idea of caring and whether we, whether we genuinely care about like the suffering of other people. And I was, I'm kind of in your boat. Like, you know, intellectually, I, I know that there are millions of people dying around the world in poverty, but I honestly like, couldn't care less. Like, you know, I, I don't have like an internal emotional thing for caring about that suffering of people. If someone was dying in front of me, then obviously I'd care about that suffering as, as you would as well. But when it's lots of people so far removed from what we can feasibly imagine, uh, it, it's, it's, it's really hard to actually, to actually, actually care about this. And what this article is arguing, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a link, um, is that um, there's this phenomenon in, in psychology, which is sort of scope insensitivity. Like you can imagine what one person looks like and you can Im- imagine what a hundred people looks like. But if you imagine a million people, like you literally can't imagine it. And if you, if you imagine a billion people, like you, there's, there's just no way in our minds to fathom what a billion people looks like. And so what we can do is we can imagine the suffering of one person. But if we scale it up like to, to the 3,000 people that died during 9-11, again, we have no real way of imagining that, that suffering. And so it's just not the way our brains are wired. Uh, and so what this article argues is that don't worry if you don't care about the suffering of others. You do because you care about the suffering of one person. It's just that your, own, your brain is is not designed to, to, to handle that sort of magnitude of, of stuff. Um, and the reason I came across this is because recently I've, I've taken this thing called the Giving What We Can Pledge. I don't know if you've come across this before. Is it, is it the, uh, the Will guy who started it from New? Yes. Yeah, Will McCaskill. Um, and like effective altruism and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this, this pledge is that you pledge to uh, give uh, 10% of your income every year to effective causes. And before, you know, this is quite an expensive decision to make because 10%, it's like an extra 10% tax on, for, for the rest of your life. But, and, before, and before taking this pledge, I, I really thought that, you know, is there something wrong with me that I just can't appreciate? I, I just don't really care about the suffering of others and life, life goes on. But then reading this article, it was like, actually, no, it's, you know, you don't have to emotionally care about it because you physically can't comprehend that, but you can kind of do the good thing anyway. So that kind of made me feel a lot better because I, I also used to think that I was, so there was something wrong with me that I was a heartless, a heartless person. <laughs> <Prick>. <laughs> <laughs> but but do, you, do you feel that like, uh, uh, do you easily uh, relate to difficult emotions if someone were to share um, some with you? Not really. That's one of the things I, I, I struggle with, yeah. 
have you got, have you got any 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 strategies for for dealing with that? Uh, I have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, if saying that word strategy just also implies that I'm such a heartless person too. <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm sure the people uh, listening to this podcast are of, of a similar vein. Yeah, well, what I, what I do? Okay, well, so definitely, um, I think, I think, I think because I, I, I write more these days. So I, and through the process of, I might, so my process of writing is, look, I have, I have something that I want to try to say to this other person and this person do not get it, right? And so what I do is that I use that as a muse to write my article. Um, and, and, and usually what I do is that I try to understand where the person is coming from and sort of write it in a way that in, is, is in his self-interest. So maybe it's an argument of time skill, right, uh, or, or, or whatnot. But it's never about me, if, why you should do this, but it's about why it is, might be the right thing to do based on that person's self-interest. And so also, I think writing an article, uh, it, it makes me empathize a lot more with, with people. And, and some of the, the actual script I used to say would be, oh, I can't, oh, I can't, I can't imagine how that is so difficult for you. Um, um, yeah, and I'm here. If, if there's any, anything I can do for you, um, you, just let me know. I'm here for you. And that's definitely one thing I do. Uh, and also, I think, depending on the, depending on the context, um, so if it's the if it's if it's like a breakup or a death of a person, um, I learned that it's just about being there. So it's not even about empathizing. It's just just being next to the person and bring them food. So it's about and and just treat that as a normal n- normal thing, um, and don't try to solve it for the person, unless they want to 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 solve it. So, so that's another one. Um, and then the last one I would say is also just to, just, to, just to paint a different story. So say, for example, my, my friend recently ran through a divorce uh, with, uh, with his wife, and he was really pissed off at one day. And I was just like, well, like, why is it you're pissed off? So firstly, trying to understand. And then after understanding it, it was, bec- it was actually not about a divorce because he actually already knows it's coming. And it was actually more about like... Um, um, the wife wanting to to get more money while he actually already uh, paid for all her school fees. And when uh, they decided on a divorce, she said, hey, let's part amicably. And then, and then uh, a week later, she turned around and said, hey, you know that 35000 when we signed that prenup thing, could I get it? So he was really, really pissed, pissed off of that. So, so I think it's about understanding more. Oh, so another thing I do is always like, well, I... I give them such a uh, reasoning of why they're pissed off. So instead of asking them, like, hey, you know, why, why do you feel sad? It's like, I would say, hey, are you close to that person? Or is it because of this? Or is it because of that? Is it a money thing for you? Is it, this is $35,000? Or is it because she's not, uh, she changed her mind? She's not, uh, she's not, uh, she doesn't live with integrity. So after knowing that, then, oh, it's actually because of, she's, he's pissed off because she said before that, She's okay parting. Then now she uh, she wants to take five thousand dollars. So it's not even about the money so much because he can't afford it. And then and then and then once I know that is the reason, then I would say it, it might be because she got bad counsel. So I just offer a different way of looking at the situation. And because Victoria Frankel, right? Because it's like in between event 
and uh, interpretation that is uh, how you choose different stories. So I just give, I just supply him with different stories, and I I supply him in a way where it's a question, so then he could think about it. Yeah. So anyway, long story long. I don't know if that's any help. Interesting. No, th- that makes a lot of sense. So uh, a lot of those strategies <laughs> are kind of what I what I use as well, um, and. One thing I've, I've begun to appreciate from, so I, uh, I've got a housemate who lives with me uh, and she's a girl. And so, you know, having like that extra, that additional perspective in my life um, has made me really appreciate that actually a lot of, a lot of the time people just want to be heard and don't necessarily just like want solutions to their problems. Because anytime like she sort of complains about something, my default reaction is to be like, look, man, you know, here's, here's the solution or here is, here is how the Stoics would think about it or here's what Epictetus would say about the things you can control or the things you can't control. But I realized that the, what, the times where she's most appreciative of it is where I'm just like, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that and just, just kind of being a listening, a listening ear. And even though I, I don't necessarily sort of, I suppose like empathy being defined as actually feeling their pain, I very rarely feel their pain, but I can still be there and, and support. And I think that's, that's fine, which is kind of similar to what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think more so and than not, I understand that about myself, which is like my default is problem solving. And then I actually, like while knowing the person, I actually tell them, hey, my default is problem solving. And if you want me to listen, you just tell me to listen. And sometimes even before going problem solving mode, I will give them a question. Hey, do, do you just want me to, to hear you out? Because it seems like it, Right. Uh, because then I tell them, oh, because my usual default is to solve your problem, but I don't think that's kind of what you want right now, right? And then I just go on telling how bad the other person is. Oh, that guy is, a, that guy is such an asshole, huh? Like, can't he just, you know, like, what's wrong with these people? Yeah, what a dick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess, I guess we are, we are on the same, we're on the same vein on that. Nice. Well, it's nice to me. It's, 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 it's nice to talk to a fellow kindred spirit who doesn't care about others. <laughs> that's funny and, and actually one, one of the things to, along that track before I move on is that um, uh, I tell people all the time um, when entrepreneurs talk to entrepreneurs we don't bond over how much money we make we bond over how much stupid shit that is thrown at us that we need to solve yeah <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> yeah having that kind of shared, shared experience yeah, and I, I guess also I this this ties in really nicely with one of the recent videos you made about you know entrepreneurship and how you are rich, so quote unquote rich now, and that and you define rich being you know your fi- your finances are not preventing you to live the lifestyle that you want, uh, which I think is interesting, right? I think I would like to explore that a little bit more of how you came up with that number and is that a monthly thing or a yearly number that you, that you look at. And what are the different components that sort of help uh, derive, give you that, that, that absolute complete number? Ah, so I don't actually have an absolute complete number. I just have a general feeling. Yeah, it's not, it's not at all like scientific in any way. And the only time I actually look at what I spend is when I made a video recently about how much I spend in a week. And that I, I just never had thought about it previously because the way that I think about money is it's... Uh, it's almost like, again, going back to this video, video game analogy, like I'm, I'm fortunate enough that because it's not a limiting factor, I can just view money as like points, points on a screen or, you know, points, points in a video game. And it's like when you're playing a video game and you have, and you've been doing enough quests and stuff to get enough gold 
And you just kind of know that when you go and you want to buy, you know, a little swig of ale from that merchant in Silver Moon City that you don't actually care about how much it's going to cost because you know that you can afford it. And that is sort of the position that I'm in with money, whereas it's not like an absolute number where I've worked out that this is the amount of money I need to kind of survive. Right. So you don't have that problem where people sort of just move their goalposts, right? Because, you know, oh, now I can afford this thing. Let's buy a bigger thing or let's buy a faster thing. Yeah, so I definitely have the problem of changing goalposts, but it's more changing goalposts like all in all in service, I think, of, of this idea of financial independence whereby I don't have to work if I don't want to. And so my whole strategy is geared towards sort of creating multiple sources of passive income. And so obviously I, I always want to create more and more of those sources of passive income because it always feels a bit like a house of cards. Like at the moment, everything is going great because YouTube is great and this, that and the other. But, you know, in five years time, what if, what if no one cares about me on YouTube anymore? Suddenly like half of my sources of revenue are all gone because they're all reliant on YouTube. So it's always a slightly uncomfortable position to be in where I'm always thinking, right, I need to mitigate against risk in all these different domains. Um, so I never really stop and think that, oh, I think I've got enough money now. It's more like, okay, let's continue to build a business so we can kind of make more of it. But then also I was, I was talking about this to a friend the other day and like, I think it's at least the position I'm in and, and I feel this would be similar for you is that a lot of the stuff that I really enjoy doing happens to make money. So like, I love making videos and the videos happen to make money. I love making courses and those happen to make money. I love making online businesses and those happen to make money. And so like, you know, I think it's not, I, I, I think about this a lot and I, I, I wonder if I'm, I wonder to what extent I'm motivated by money, but I think I'm motivated by enjoyment and monetizing a passion is itself an extra source of enjoyment. And that's why it just is sort of like a, a loop that just keeps on going, I hope. I don't know. I don't know if any of that makes sense. Like, how do, how do you think about it? No, 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 it does. It, it 100% does. Uh, I, and I think you're under the bucket of lucky, right? And I think a lot of people, uh, there are some people who are enjoying something that couldn't make money or they need to uh, do it for a long time before they can make money and they need to go past the dip, which most people just, you know, die trying. Uh, so in that, you're in the, in the bucket of lucky, I would say. Huh. Yeah. And when did, when did you realize that, actually? That you are, quote-unquote, uh, rich? Or your income matches with your desires? Um, probably since, like, my second year of university. Like, ever since I started SixMed. Because it was, you know, as a university student, even, even making an extra few thousand pounds a year, like, you, you feel really rich because you're like, damn, I can, I can buy whatever I want. Um, and, <laughs> but, but even then, like the, the things that I wanted to buy were always sort of reasonable. Like I was, I was, I was never, I would never fantasize about like a 5,000 pound handbag. And back then I would be like, Oh, you know, maybe next time I upgrade my MacBook, I'll be able to get the 13 inch retina version, which is like 1200 pounds rather than 900 pounds. So it, it would be sort of that sort of basically in the, in the realm of tech purchases and with tech purchases, you can call it a business expense and, and all of that sort of stuff. Whereas back then I wouldn't, I didn't fantasize about getting a 5,000 pound iMac pro because it just, it just, just was not even in the, I just didn't even want it. If you, if you'd given me the option, probably would have taken it. But now like as, 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 as my income has grown, I now find myself. So, so for example, if I'm buying a new MacBook and I do all my editing and run my life on a MacBook, I really don't care how much it costs. Like I'd happily spend 5,000 pounds on a MacBook, but I've recognized that that's a, an investment as opposed to a liability. So in that sense, 
I like ever since my sort of ever since starting this first business at university, I've been thankfully at the point where uh, my lifestyle can sort of the amount of money I make on the side easily funds the lifestyle that I want to lead. Would you say that even without your doctor's um, salary, like you'll be you, you're just fine? Uh, now I am. Yeah. I wouldn't have been uh, sort of at, at university because the income from six med and stuff wouldn't probably wouldn't have covered it. But now, like with the YouTube and the online courses and the other stuff, then yeah, it's it's definitely a good position to be in. To the point where I've I've actually quit my job from August, uh, so I'll be going full time on on the YouTube. Oh, have you tendered? Uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of a default thing because if you don't apply to a training pathway, then you don't have a job. And I didn't apply to a training pathway, so I'll be taking a break from August from medicine. Oh, congrats. Congrats. Yeah. Exciting. Exciting times. Yeah. So, th- so that kind of goes to, sorry, uh, that, uh, th- that kind of goes to what I wanted to ask you about. Like, you know, how, one, th- one thing I'm really worried about is like come August where I won't have this kind of 50 hours a week full-time job with like 10 hours a week of commuting. When I won't have all that time taken up with a full-time job, what will I do with my time? And like, how will I know what makes me fulfilled and all these sorts of questions that I'm now having to ask now that the prescribed route of just be a doctor is no longer kind of the immediate short-term answer. Don't you have an answer yourself already to just do the YouTube thing and continue doing what you are already loving to do? Like, I, I... yeah, I do, but that, it, I don't know. It, it kind of feels like cheating. And I guess, I guess maybe sort of what I really want is I want, I want, I want someone to give me permission to do that. <laughs> no, go, go, go make a ruckus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, I kind of know in my mind what I need to do, but it feels, it feels like such a rogue option. And so away from the default path that I feel like I need to, I need to get enough validation from other people saying that, Oh, actually this sounds like a good plan before I can think that it's a good plan. Well, let's think about, let's think about what are the, the fun, uh, foundational element of, of a good choice, right? Do you enjoy it? Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Well, th- th- you know, uh, uh, it, it, it makes you money. Not that money is of a concern now. It's, um, I, 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 that's it, really. Yeah, I guess so. It's like, uh, I think um, it's, 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 it's sort of that like three-way Venn diagram of, you know, something that I enjoy doing, something I'm good at, and something that makes me money. And like the YouTube stuff firmly fits into the middle of all those all those things. I, I would even I would even go so far to say that that Venn diagram only works to a certain level, because because once you have enough money on um, your S and P five hundred, you know, you, right, you're set. You don't even need to make money anymore. You don't even need to do things you're good at. Just focus the thing you enjoy. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. I certainly don't have enough money in the S and P five hundred for the, for that to happen. So, <laughs> I, I I still have that you need to have in the S and P five hundred. Um, I mean, how much do you want to spend a rule? month? Yeah, four percent. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think I think if I had a, but then I don't know. Like I've I've been reading a lot of stuff from from people who have reached this financial independence who have like you know two million in the S and P five hundred and four percent rule says they can withdraw eighty thousand a year and that's absolutely fine. But the sorts of people that who who have that sort of thing are the sorts of people who sort of will still feel like, oh, this is uh, this is all very shaky, and I want to make sure I have a more firm nest egg and 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 all this stuff. I I think there are definitely sorts of people like that, but I also think that there are people in the other camp who just like 
So I just like, you know what? That's, I'm sorted. Yeah, that's, every, that's everyone else. That's every like good artist out there, right? But look at look yeah. at like look at like the 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 comedy special, the comedians, right? The Chris Rock, the C.K. Lewis. Yeah. Do you think they need to make another like another comedy million, special? Yeah. No, yeah, <laughs> they're just doing it for fun. They just doing it because they they like to do it. Do you think they're doing it because they like to do it, or because there's some other element of playing a status game? Well, I'm sure there are people who are playing a status game, uh, uh, but I, but I think like at some point, like you, you, like there's only so much status you can get, right? I think they are like done, right? Once you, once you, you, once you're on Netflix, you're done. You don't need another Netflix special. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's the same as like once, like how many more million subscribers? It makes no difference. Like you still get you still get a sit in the finest restaurant, and you probably could could um you could probably use money to buy that sit at the restaurant, just pay enough money, and so like, do you really need the status? So the, uh, that's interesting. Like, uh, so aside uh, on a side note, my brother has recently raised raised some money for his his startup. And through the course of this kind of fundraising thing, he's he's met up with a lot of like angel investors and sort of investment funds and stuff. And these are all people with like millions and millions of pounds. Um, and one thing interesting that he he sort of he, he he met this guy who was one of the early employees at Microsoft and was like Steve Ballmer's right hand man or something. And this guy became like a multimillionaire, obviously, because you know he was one of the founding employee well, early employees at Microsoft. Uh, and what he was saying, he was like, yeah, you know, I kind of thought that. Uh, I thought once I had a few million in the bank that I don't really need money anymore because I could kind of buy whatever I wanted and it wasn't really a limiting factor. But then Steve Ballmer took me into his private jet and then I realized, man, there's more money to be made. <laughs> and then he started playing the game of money again. But but for him, at least he enjoyed he enjoyed the journey of making money. And I wonder if it's similar for me that even if I've got my kind of magical number in the S&P 500 for my 4% withdrawal rate, I still enjoy the process of sort of making money more than the than the money itself. I wonder if that's that's part of it. I don't know. How do you how do you feel about this sort of stuff? I think it's fine. Like like who cares about like go make money. If you enjoy it, go do it. Cuz it's like well who who's there to say like, you know, you uh, uh play a judgment on you wanting to like like to make money or you wanting to play a status game. And I, I think I think people who like say that that's a bad thing or a good thing, like well they are casting a judgment. How about that? Right, and I think like at the end of the day, you just gotta do things that you enjoy, and you know if if, if that's what you enjoy, like, like go for it. I mean, it's not it's not hurting anyone. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I enjoy it. Makes money. Why not? And I can always go back into medicine if I if I want to. The option's always open. Yeah. I think, I, I think maybe one of the flaws in my own reasoning for this is that every decision, like these sorts of decisions, I am, I'm I'm acting as if they're irreversible decisions. So in my head, when I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to take a break from medicine and become a YouTuber, in my head, that's got like sort of 20 years of baggage associated with it because it's like, oh, but, you know, if I'm 50 and, you know, surely I'm not going to be making YouTube videos when I'm 50 years old. But, you know, there's 25 years in between now and then and I can always change course along the way depending on what, what happens. I think well, and you, don't even need to, and you don't even need to make money when you're 50. You, you set. <laughs> yeah, true. Kind of, you probably have enough money in the S&P 500. I mean, sure, if you want to buy a jet, I don't think you'd want that. <laughs> no, I don't really want to buy a jet. 
But actually, so I flew business class for the first time a couple of months ago. And yeah, I, <laughs> I think having, having, having enough money to be able to fly business class is like a good place to be. And I, I'm not quite there yet. So <laughs> how, much, how much do you think like a year you need to fly business class all the time? Oh, actually, good point. Okay, how much is a business class seat? A business class seat is about £2,000 for like a return trip. I, I don't know, okay. how much do they cost? I don't know. I never flew business class yet. Yeah, I've, 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 I've never actually thought about this because I got it with air miles and I just, just thought, uh, I guess I need a spare like 10000 a year to, to comfortably fly business class, you know, the three or four times that I travel long haul. And it's not even that much, 10000 a year. That's okay. Okay, fine. You're right. That's pretty doable. <laughs> okay. Well, that's what I'm talking about, like, knowing the goalpost, where the goalpost is. Because when, mm. when you know it, then you don't need to go, like, the extra mile to sort of, like, oh, I shouldn't, like, just stop playing this game two years ago. Like, what am I doing? This conversation was happening. So there's this uh, uh, agency that I'm part of that um, manages lots of educational YouTubers. And there's about 80 of us in this, in this agency. And we've got, like, a Slack channel where we talk about loads of stuff. And this topic came up the other day. It's like a lot of these guys have like sort of 2 million, 3 million, 5 million, 10 million plus subscribers on YouTube. So obviously they're making like so much money off that and they don't really need to worry about money. Um, but we, we were talking in the Slack about this idea that when you publish a video, like how, how much does, like if it's, uh, if it's an underperforming video, how much does that affect you personally? So, for example, when you publish a video, it tells you on the YouTube app how it fares relative to the last 10 videos you published. So, you know, one of these big guys published a video that was 9 out of 10, which means it's got less views than the last nine of his videos in that in that amount of time. And his philosophy of this was actually was that, look, to be honest, once you as, as, as long as you enjoy it and it's sustainable at that point, you really don't care about the numbers because it really does not matter. You just keep doing what you enjoy and just make sure it's sustainable. And everyone was like, damn, that's, that's some good shit, man. This is because I think everyone struggles, struggles with this issue of like, how much do I care about the numbers when the numbers don't actually matter? And it becomes more of like an ego thing or more of like a, oh, you know, am I going to be a relevant thing? Or yeah, I think we make up all sorts of stories to make these numbers seem more, seem more legit than they actually are. Yeah, I, I think fundamentally it comes back to the question of like, well, what are you doing this for, right? You know, and then, and then, and I think... It comes back to the thing of the game you're playing, right? But what game are you playing right now? Have you actually finished playing this game? Time to move on to a different game. You know, maybe if it's status, great. Maybe it's like uh, teaching people. Maybe the next level on that is like, maybe it's about teaching people so that they can teach other people. So then it comes back to the whole quote of like, the most meaningful, um, this is Adam Grant, the most meaningful way to succeed is to help other people succeed. So it's like you're playing the game. Well, how can I help more people succeed? Oh, that, and that's a different sort of game to how can I get more views and more subscribers? Mate, this is, this is gold. How can I help more people succeed? Yeah, and then how can, you make help, how can you help more people help more people? Whoa, that's like another level. Okay, so what's this equation for you? Like wh wh where are you in terms of kind of this uh, sort of S&P 500 4% rule versus how much you care about making money, how much you care about doing stuff you enjoy. Like, what's, how, how, how do you think about it? Right. Uh, so on my end, uh, for me, it's five Singapore dollars, 5,000 Singapore dollars a month. So that's where uh, the income I'll be happy at. And that e equates to me, like, in my business, doing, like, one or two uh, animation videos project. 
So if I'm doing one, I'm saving money. If I'm doing two, I hit the thing. If I'm doing three, man, I'm gonna fly business class this month, right? Oh, okay, interesting. <laughs> so, um, so I've so that is running right now the animation business thing, which I do on site. So for me, it's about how can I like reduce the amount of time there, and and sort of do the things I enjoy most, which is you no know, learning because I like to be surprised over here. Um, uh, so I'm not yet at the point where I can just live off of S&P 500 and like ignore doing the animation business because once I can live off of S&P 500 getting $5,000 a month, I would not even care about like, you know, the animation business. I'll like sell it right here now immediately. And, okay, interesting. Right. So the way of how I think about picking the next project for myself, uh, which I am in the midst of, of doing that, um, is I don't, I don't look at the financial bit because that's important for somebody, because I just look at, do I enjoy this? You know, so the criteria I look at is enjoyment and also excitement uh, and alignment with my uh, work and life view. Uh, I look at remarkability. Uh, would people want to talk about this thing that I'm doing? Um, and I look at usability. Like, is it actually usable to other people? And then like, maybe like one would be like, Oh, I help one person, right? Five would be uh, I I help uh, people in the local context. And ten would be like inventing like Tesla, uh, like right. So that's like one ten. So I just go about like do, doing this weighted average thing, and then once I have like uh, uh, a weighted average, I just pick the top five and I just go explore it like back of the napkin sketch. So uh, so I'll, I'll just run you through like two examples of mine. So one of them is like, hey. Uh, I, I want to work with in the nexus of people, of smart people, right? I want to work with people that are different from me, uh, that are um, smart and specialized in their own field. So it's like, oh, wait, well, where can I do that, right? So, oh, maybe I can work at a startup uh, accelerator, right? Or maybe I can work with like a super successful angel investor and help him, you know, vet through different deals and then I can meet different founders. And so I can know where my superpowers are. And then I could double down on that and it's okay, understand how the world uh, uh, works more. So that's one, one idea. And then, and then I'll just, uh, so I'll, I'll, explore, I'll explore this. Okay, what, what, what does this look like? You know, the different stages. I need to probably prep my resume and I need to send to 20 people and then I need to, you know, figure out visa and then, uh, and then um, uh, maybe I, I, I'll go work for, for a tree person first and then, and then I'll, I'll, I'll be great. And this will sort of finish in like one year time because... By then, I would my whole point is to understand you know this industry and know a bunch of people that are specialized uh, specialists, right? So, so that's one idea, and then another idea would be like a bigger idea, right? So, how can I create like Evernote but for medical records, right? Because right now there's Apple Health, um, but then like well, but Apple Health don't really tell you what medication that you're taking, right? Apple Health don't really let you like uh, record your blood tests. Right, Apple Health don't really record your X-ray and your MRI, right? So uh, this would be interesting, right? You know, and then it's like, well, can I take that and then combine it with the good UI and put our information layer on top of it? Like, what does thirty-six millimolar of this means? You know, and then I put a gauge on top of it. You know, maybe, uh, and then after that, I do recommendation layer on top of that, right? And then can I add security on top of it, right? Can I have one password security? Uh, with this medical record thing because it's like super sensitive data, right? Now I have an economic model behind that, right? And once I have an economic model big enough, 
then I can create APIs that plug directly into um, the doctor's system. Then I could be in the business of selling API, blah, 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 blah. And so, but this is like a seven years project, right? So I'm like, how the hell? I sound like just sketching it out. And so, so, and then maybe another one would be like, right now I'm learning about dating, which we'll get into later. Um, so I, I would like to write, uh, you know, like uh, my chronicles, right? Uh, how can I go from a loser to a lover? And that would be part one, you know what I mean? <laughs> okay. And then how can I get from a lover to a life partner, right? That would be part two of the book. Interesting. Yeah. So, so they're all very interesting ideas, right? And I was like, oh, I don't know. And so for me, it's just like exploring it. And then uh, one of the questions that I asked myself in this stage is like, well, how long does the project takes, you know, for you to be successful? And uh, I also asked people who are like in writer, writer's land, like, oh, how do you, how is, how is day to day like, you know, as a, as a writer, you know, would I like, would I like myself the day to day? Um, in this right land, uh, writer's land, and if I don't, then maybe I should not do it because I would want to optimize for day-to-day enjoyment. Uh, but if I like the work, then, oh, yeah, that's interesting. And then I, I look at remarkability, you know, is this thing that I'm doing, like, different, so different from the last thing I'm doing or the, the thing that everyone else, do I have an interesting take on this? Um, and, then, and, then, and then after that, it's just like, what well, I just go, go try one out for a month, two months. And then if you still like to do it, just go for it. And then if you don't like to do it, you can always have different ideas like down the pipeline. So you sort of rank things on sort of the, the different things you're interested on on a few different domains like excitement, enjoyment, remarkability, usability. Find a, a weighted average of the things that you care most about and then you just sort of explore it for a bit because you can always change your mind later on. If something, if for example, writing a dating book seems not very interesting, then you can just change your mind and do something else and it doesn't really matter because you're... There you go. Oh, man. That easy. Like a, yeah. That seems really easy and straightforward when someone else says it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it tells yeah, me all the right. time. It tells me all the time. It's like, you, it's, it's easy when you know how to do it. Okay, what? Does that sound good to you? I mean, like, does that apply, you know, or is there any other question that flowed up as I talk about this? No, that, I think that very much applies. So, I'm curious about, the, about so for, for example, this animation business. You said that, yeah. so for, for, for example, if you were to win the lottery, you would just sell the business and not oh, yeah. worry. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Do you know? Because I have tons of other projects that like, I like to do, but doesn't make me money. So I would like, rather do those. I, I, I guess for me, like, I, I, if I won the lottery, I'd probably still make YouTube videos because it's fun. But I probably wouldn't make any more online courses because, I mean... I could just put them on YouTube for free and at that point I don't care or about it. Or you can turn off ads, you know, like it's such a difficult yeah, thing turn off to ads. Like, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, forget about sponsorships because that just adds a bit of stress to the, the whole process. So there's, yeah. yeah. But fundamentally, I'll still, I'll still be doing the videos. So I suppose I'm quite lucky in that the videos correlate with the money thing for now. But yeah, if I did win the lottery, I, I would do a few things differently, which sounds kind of fairly, fairly similar to you. Yeah, and you, you, can, you can also try different things while you're doing this YouTube thing, right? Because right now you have extra 50 hours a week to try different things out. So well, as, if you have any ideas of things that you want to try out or like anything interesting in the world that, you know, someone has started a startup, maybe making medical records easy so they ever know, then you might want to help. <laughs> then you could volunteer your time. Yeah, that's very true. And I've actually started, I've, I've started making a bucket list of things that I want to do from, from August when I'll, I'll have this free 50 hours a week uh, kind of freed up. Uh, one of them is I want to I want to try and make some videos interviewing Nobel Prize winners in Cambridge and elsewhere and I'm asking them about these sorts of productivity type questions because no one is hitting that market right now like Tim Ferriss is not interviewing Nobel Prize winners 
he's interviewing like sort of successful business people and billionaires. And there is this untapped sort of trove of information where, where, where no one's really talking about it. Um, I've also, I also want to start doing ice skating lessons. So there's a new ice skating rink that's opened up in Cambridge and I want to do figure skating and try and try and do ice hockey. So yeah. And things like getting all. a piano teacher, getting a guitar teacher. <laughs> ah. And I, and I think it's also interesting because I have been interviewing people, right? Um, it's interesting to talk to people that are almost going to die because they just tell you the truth. They have no ego anymore. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Wait, so have you, have you interviewed people who are almost going to die on this podcast? Well, I mean, I don't know when they're going to die, firstly, but I just, oh. <laughs> inter- I, <laughs> I just like older, to older interview... Older people yeah. younger people, yeah. That's right, yeah. I, I skew more towards older people, uh, and you, you get to explore more interesting topics uh, uh, with them because they're just like, I have enough money, you know, I don't care about my business. I'm just going to tell you how I run it, all the secret sauce. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So if you're going to do the Nobel thing, optimize against older people first and then go, yeah. go down <laughs> no, the point. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like I, I can find people who've won the Nobel Prize in Cambridge sorted by age and then email them or send them a letter potentially. Done. I want to ask you just, just on a side note about your animation yeah. business. So yeah, go for it. I want, you... to, I, want to, I want to incorporate animation into some of my videos, but I don't know how to go about hiring an animator. Hire, like what is a motion graphics artist? Do I need to hire an illustrator? I, so, so for, for, for example, have you, have you heard the parable of the Mexican fisherman? I'm, I'm sure you have. Yes, yep, 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 yep. Yeah, it's, it's a story of you know Mexican fisherman by the boat That's and right. the investment banker comes along. And it's like, why do you stuff. do it in the first place and then go back to the yeah. square one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So I want to include that in a video, but I would love to have sort of like an illustrated sort of animated storyline going across it. And not like, uh, and not like super funky, like characters moving more like sort of, if you imagine, if you imagine like video game concept art, like you've got a sketch and you have a mild parallax going so that you can appreciate the movement in the piece, but it's not like physically characters moving. Do you get, do you get what I'm getting at? Yeah. 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 So I, I just have absolutely no, no idea how to go about finding someone who can do that sort of thing or even okay. to make custom motion graphics and stuff. Like how, like, how do I do it? Right. So I think, I think the question, uh, the first question to ask is that, is this going to be a long-term thing or is this going to be a one-time thing? It's going to be a long-term thing. I want to do it for multiple videos and I want to have the option of including animations and videos just to make the videos better. Got it. And then, okay, so then you might want to hire a person. Um, I'm going to see... Yeah, the problem is the problem about hiring a person is that, like, ideally, the editor can also do motion graphics. Yes, ideally. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think your first option is because it's easier to manage one person than two person. Yeah. So so and so it would also actually be cheaper, I think, in the long run. So find an editor who can do motion graphic, and it's actually, and also it's two different skill set. So firstly, figure out like uh, back. Let's look at it from the uh, from from the end point, and then work 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 backwards. Is what kind of style do you have, and uh, find one or two references that you know that the style that you want. Oh yes, you're right. Okay. Yeah. So I can. And once. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. So I've got. I've, the, uh, there's this. Uh... A YouTuber called Anna Akana. I don't know if you know her. No. So she's like this uh, American Chinese YouTuber with huh. like 3 million subscribers and stuff. But like her, her thing is really interesting because it's her talking to the camera. But alongside, there'll be kind of like motion graphics elements. And she might talk about relationships and then she'll do this. And then like hearts would like blossom out and like anim- sort of illustrated, animated and stuff. Yeah, 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 and yeah. yeah. 
yeah, yeah. I would, I would love to have that kind of style because then it's still me on camera, but it just a little bit of spice added to the added to the video just to make it a little bit more interesting. So that's sort of what I'm looking for. I, and I think also as you're embarking on this journey, what would be kind of interesting because you have done so much videos already um, is to do a branding exercise. Oh, okay, because, what do you mean? Uh, so a branding exercise basically sort of like um, um, uh, create a, a, a sort of graphic system um, so that all your video ties through and it feels like a uh, cohesive uh, 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 design. Yeah. And, yeah, and then it. you can also... Because now it seems like you're going to hire an illustrator and then it's like, no, the normal way people do it and normal how I do it is oh, okay, just, I want this style and then you just plug it in. And then, and then you have then all this separate style that you like that are like so different from each other. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah. So, so if you do a branding exercise, now you get a logo, you get, you know, like you get to think about in the future a little bit how your video will look like and then yeah. how your thumbnails will look like, how your website mm. will look like and then um, sort of create like a typography system, a color yeah. palette system, um, yeah. um, uh, and and then and then and then it will make you make your life easier in the sense whereby, oh, I'm gonna do this, and so once you have the system out, you know you you can you can hire the right people easier because then you can just search for okay, I want just this style, you know, can you do it? And here's how to do it. Here's all the tutorials you can learn how to do it. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think it might be also worth considering like a branding exercise. Uh, with a designer that, that you like to create like a typography, a color palette, you know, illustration uh, and animation uh, uh, system for moving forward as you create more videos. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, I'd vaguely thought about like logo and typography, but I hadn't really thought about doing sort of considering illustration and animation along with it because I just haven't included that yet. Um, so that's a good idea. I will at some point in, in August probably do a <laughs> no, and I can. I am actually in the midst of uh, going through like seventy designer right now to choose one that's gonna work uh, with me uh, to do my oh. branding stuff. Yeah, so I went on. This, I'm probably gonna write an article out soon of how I like uh, look for all these different designers and like what are the skill sets of designer uh, to 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 look for and stuff. So you can. I will send it to you once I've I've done that because oh, yeah, like be yeah, you could you could just go ahead and just like find one whatever that you know is is good uh, to work with you. But then like if you really want to. Um, uh, know about design more I think it's the best way to learn might be just to interview people interview people as an in interview prospective designers or just interview people yeah. and ask them well both oh, okay. actually okay yeah, yeah got it uh, okay, that's idea. but that answers right. that answers right. your question yeah. right so, so and yeah. then once okay. you have the references then you can send it to me then I can tell you uh, exactly what sort of skill sets you want to do but it's and what sort of plugin that you can try out and, and, and this that the other yeah okay cool yeah yeah, because like at at the, at the moment when I whenever I see a, a a brand element that I like in a YouTube video, I screenshot it and post it in a you know a Google Drive for my editor to see. And we're sort of trying trying to sort of organically build a sort of brand sort of style, but it's it's not been explicitly defined yet. And I think it's definitely worth defining it explicitly. Perfect. Uh, let's move on to productivity a little bit. Um, I want to know like how the hell do you do a fifty hours job <laughs> and have a newsletter and have a YouTube channel. What's your cadence? Like two videos a week or three? Oh, no, it's only one video a week these days. <laughs> I would like for it to be two, but I think one, one is all, all I can manage. One is a struggle as well. Like, to be honest, the way I do the productivity thing is that I don't really have any downtime when I'm at home in the sense that I consider my downtime like the time spent driving from work to home where I listen to audiobooks or something. And then when I get home, I'm like, right, 
we've got to turn out a video by next week and therefore today needs to be filming tomorrow needs to be preparing for my supervision thursday needs to be doing the supervision friday i'm going home for the weekend saturday and sunday i'll be with the family and therefore we can record a podcast on the sunday and i'll write the email newsletter on sunday and then monday i'll film some of this video send it to my editor who'll release it in time for tuesday and then we can get the video out wednesday it's it's a very kind of everything comes together at the last minute but also i i don't i mean i I live off takeaways and I only go to the gym like once or twice a week and that's not, it's not ideal. And I don't really do any sports anymore because, you know, it's squash and badminton in the evenings. Do you not fall sick? Uh, not really. It's, it, it's just all quite fun, but it feels, it, feel, it, feel, it feels a little bit like I'm sort of stretching myself a little bit too much right now. Um, but that's why kind of ever since I, I got this editor, it's really kind of freed up a lot of my own time. And now I've hired this other guy part-time who's helping write some content. But then I'm, I'm now running into those issues whereby uh, it's sort of it's, it's quite like this whole managing people is something that's very new to me. And so I feel bad asking the editor to do stuff. And like, you know, I, I don't really know what does get him and, and Angus, this, this other guy to spend their time doing. And I just, I just don't really know how to put it all together. And I feel like I'm currently the bottleneck. Um, so that's like another source of like annoyingness in my life where I, before I thought, oh, I'll just hire an editor and then that'll be that. But actually there's a lot more communication that goes into it, as I'm sure you, you can appreciate Yes, I uh, have uh, fired people, and it's not fun. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I haven't had to fire anyone yet, so that's good. <laughs> Oof, yeah, well, one day you'll come, you'll come. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Wait, so, um, so you, don't, you don't actually have any, like, um, videos or writings at the back end to, like, pull out just in case you can't hit that wig, right? Uh, I don't have any videos on the back end because, uh, but I, I've, I've got lots of video ideas, and if, if, we need, if we need an idea for a video one week, then you know, we can usually come up with something. At the moment, it's kind of dictated by what sponsors we've got for the video that week. So ever since joining this YouTube agency, it's been it's been amazing because they can pretty much guarantee sponsors on, on, on any video that I want. And so I've set a schedule of I'm going to release one video a week. And therefore, we have one sponsored video a week, which therefore has a deadline of like every Wednesday. Um, and so depending on who the sponsor is, I sort of pick from my list of topics that, you know, this week it's Notion. So that's easy because I've got loads of videos about Notion planned already. So I can just do one of them. But next week, it'll be like curiosity stream. And then I'm thinking, okay, what's a good video that I wanted to do anyway that would tie in nicely to this particular sponsor? So that's sort of the process each week by which I decide what the video is going to be. But I think in an ideal world, I want to get to the point where I can film maybe once a month and just film four videos in a row that covers all the sponsored content. And then I can spend the rest of the time sort of doing the more high level thinking kind of stuff. Yeah, I wonder how how is it going to look like when you are going to go traveling, right? Yeah, definitely. That's something that I've, I've also been thinking about. Like, I've, I think like in practically every, I, I was thinking it would be very reasonable to sort of get a sort of fancy-ish looking Airbnb that can double as a video studio. Uh, every, every major city will have like camera hire companies where I can just hire a light, uh, a light dome and everything. And then I can just use my own camera and microphone. So in a way, when, I, when I'll be traveling, I'll have my own YouTube studio set up everywhere I go, you know, for, for like two, two to four weeks. And then I can churn out videos while I'm there alongside doing the traveling. So that, that's sort of the idea that I had, but I don't know. Yeah, possible. Or you might even have like travel videos, like travel vlog stuff. Yeah, potentially. I wanted, I, I've been trying to get back into vlogging because I think it's a, a good style of content. And I want to, fi- you know, going back to sy- systematic creativity, I, I want to find a systematic way of, and like a, a distinct style for doing my own vlogs. Because people like Casey Neistat and Peter McKinnon will ha- have their own distinctive style. And I want to do one that works for me, that sort of fits in with my, with my brand, but that's also easy enough to repeatedly do in a systematic sort of way. 
So what, what's currently, like, what is your workflow uh, looks like for uh, YouTube? So, like, how do you plan? How do you work with an editor? And I think on that note, like, do you think you have anything to share with hiring an editor? Or, like, how much do, what's the rough rate and all that? Yeah, sure. So, um, at the moment, the workflow is as follows. So, we've got a, um, on, on Notion, we've got, like, a table of upcoming sponsored videos. And that's kind of filled out for the next few months. Uh, so we know what the date is and what the sponsor is. And then we just have to come up with video titles. So every week or every two weeks or so, I'll kind of look at this list and think, okay, let me think about the video in March and what do we need? What, what, what video does that, does that need to be? So if it's a video that I already know how to do, if it's like a what's on my iPhone video, that's easy. You know, I, just, I don't even have to script it. I can just ad lib what's on my iPhone and, and that would be a good video. But one video that we're working on at the moment is, is drinking coffee good for you? So that was a question that I genuinely had because I drink about five cups of coffee a day. And I was wondering, is, is drinking coffee good for you? So I asked Angus, who is sort of the, the, the researcher writer guy, to kind of do the literature research and figure out whether coffee is good for you and turn it into like talking points. And so I can then read those talking points from a teleprompter or whatever and turn it, turn it into a script. And then once I've filmed a video, then I would put it, I've, I've got, a, I've got, I've got my, my old laptop that's connected wired to the, the internet. Uh, and that's connected to Google, to Google Drive. So I just upload it to Google Drive, and then my editor, Christian, in Romania, downloads it, because in Romania, they've got lightning-fast internet speeds. And then he edits it, and then we use the website called Frame, Frame.io as like a, a sort of video, video collaboration, and I would write comments on it, and then he would make some changes, and then he would upload it. So that's sort of what the workflow looks like. Um, and it's so nice having that ability to just send stuff to Christian, because like, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a really good editor, and he just kind of makes, makes magic out of the edit. So it's nice. <laughs> it's wonderful. And do you and do you like pay by project or you pay by like a month? Yeah, I I, I pay by month. So, yeah. So 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 initially when I was hiring, uh, so initially I was working with a freelance editor about six six seven months ago. That was this guy in Ireland who was charging twenty five pounds an hour, and on average he would take about four or five hours per video. So I was paying about one hundred twenty five pounds per video, um, and he would edit in Final Cut. So he would send me the Final Cut project file. I would relink it up on my end, and I would. I would do the final, the actual final cut myself. Uh, and then I would screencast my, the process of doing that so he could know for next time what the changes I'm making. So that was sort of basically by the hour, by the project. But then a few months after that, I was looking to hire a full-time head of content. And the initial idea for this hire is that it was going to be someone who could help write content, who could help convert videos into blog posts for the website, who could help repurpose content for Instagram and LinkedIn and, you know, the Gary V model of create once and chop multiple times. Basically someone who could help with that sort of thing. Um, but then this guy, Christian, sort of reached out via this job, job application thing. Uh, and initially I fully expected to hire someone who was in the UK who was maybe near Cambridge so I could meet with them on a weekly basis. I heard, but then yeah, Christian I saw came the along and, job post. Yeah, and yeah, so he, he, he was a really good writer and I asked him to do like a sample blog post, which was really good. But also he was a professional video editor and he'd been working for other YouTubers and editing videos professionally. And he was also sort of a graphic designer and had done sort of gaming graphics for a gaming YouTuber and they, were, they looked really good. So it was like three birds with one stone and I was like, it was, it was just a, a no-brainer to hire him. And like the, the salary that I advertised on my website was £35,000 for the year, which is like, you know, basically what a doctor makes, <laughs> a junior doctor makes, um, but I was like, you know what? It's fine. I want to I wanna find someone who's really good who can help kind of grow the business. And so now I pay Christian £35,000 a year <laughs> sort of on a monthly kind of rate because he was just the best guy for the job. 
Yeah, for thirty five thousand is like a lot of money. Yeah, it's a lot of money. But he was he was the best guy for the job. <laughs> so it would have been unfair to be like, "Hey, Christian, mate," and he, he's he's going to be watching this when he when he when he edits it into bits. <laughs> it would have been a bit unfair to be like, "Christian, bro, you're in Romania." <laughs> but no, no, he's great. I love working with Christian. It's very nice. Yeah, no, but if you're happy, then how does then why do you need Angus if that's the case? Then like, I don't Christian just don't do the research too. Yeah, so Christian can do the can do the research, but because we've had so much editing workload in these last few weeks, especially because uh, I'm working on an online course about we're with some friends about how to become a doctor in the U.S. and that's like a hundred videos, and every month we're trying to churn out new classes on Skillshare. There's just so much editing to do that that is actually taking up all of Christian's time. Uh, whereas, sort of, I actually writing scripts for new videos and stuff. He has like like his his skills are better spent doing the editing, I think, than on writing scripts for new videos. So then Angus emailed a few weeks ago saying, hey, I'm a Cambridge graduate. I live in Cambridge. I'm looking for a freelance gig. Do you need writing? And I was like, oh, perfect. <laughs> I actually need a freelance writing gig. So I've got Angus for two, day, for, for two days a week. Um, and he does some writing and stuff. And we met up in person. And it's nice having, sort of working with someone that I can see physically in real life as well. And, okay, so I think moving on to this YouTube thing a little bit. Um, how, where do you draw the line of like, what you could share and like, what you don't want to share? Like... Yeah, so that's interesting. Um, I don't share anything about religion deliberately uh, because that's a topic that I really don't want to go into, especially because, like, because because being being a Muslim, but like not being a very very practicing Muslim, it's like a really sort of. Uh, tough area to be in because i know that a big a big chunk of my audience is going to be sort of sort of these muslim kids in like indian pakistan and stuff and in a way i don't want to air my views on religion because i know it's going to influence some some people also there's a significant element of you know my family isn't overly happy with my sort of not very practicingness of being being a muslim and therefore i i sort of i i actively don't talk about that um, most other things I'm completely happy, happy talking about. Uh, one thing that I'm struggling with at the moment that I'd be curious to get your take on is I want to branch out into more like personal finance sort of videos, uh, like videos about like in, how to get started with investing, you know, what is passive income, what is S&P 500, you know, what is the 4% rule, how does a mortgage work, stuff like that, stuff that I've been reading a lot about over the last few years and that I, I think more people should know. And there's a trend amongst like finance YouTubers to be openly transparent about the amount of money they're making. And so I, I would love to do a video where I talk about, you know, the, I'm thinking the title would be something like how I make $10,000 a month in passive income or whatever that figure ends up being. But I'm really worried that that will make me look like an absolute prick for essentially, it, it, I'm worried it would come across as boasting about how much money I make. Whereas I want, I want the clickbait element. Oh, yeah, I but, but because I, I, I want the clickbait element, but it's only, it's only clickbait if it doesn't add value. And I think the video itself would add value and would be interesting and inspiring for people. I would also, I would also argue the other way, right? Which is, there's no reason to, to care about what other people think. Yeah, true, there is. <laughs> I, I mean, I think, I think when... No, no, I think, I, think, I think I know, I understand where you're coming from in the sense whereby... Um, like they are an audience after all. Yeah. Uh, but I think you could, do a, you could do a disclaimer. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's a plan. You know, be like, look guys, 
I know this is a, I, I I don't want this to, to I I don't want this to come across as boasting. The objective here is to educate and inspire and let you know that this is possible and what the process was of getting there. If you don't like talking about money, that's fine. Just leave the video. Or, you know, some something like that. But I I like the idea of being transparent about money, um, and I feel like more people should do it more often. Like I'm always a bit annoyed when like I I ask my friend like you know friends I've known from school and university you know how much you're making in the in, in your job. And they're cagey about it. I'm like, come on, man. Like, there's literally no need to be cagey about this. This is not public. We're just having a private conversation, but they're still cagey about how much money they make. So, yeah. I, no, I saw so I'm on the same camp with you. I think, like, me being Asian, I'm just like, we talk about money all day. Like, well, how much is that? Oh, good deal. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, but I, I think, so I think the friend part is, is, I don't think you care much about that. Um, then you can, the disclaimer part, you will be able to solve. Um, it with it being uh, uh, proud, being proud, but is that? I think that's kind of it, right? I think I think maybe it's also worthwhile to think about what's the downside of just like sharing everything, right? Like, we, might you get robbed, you know, when you go back to Pakistan? I don't know. Yeah, probably not. I don't think that's a significant downside I'm worried about. <laughs> but... Is there anything else you're worried about? Like, you know, no, it, it's it's just more a fear of what will people think, and I know that's bad, and I need to get over that. It's like. Any time, like with my with a video I made last year, the title was "How I Ranked First at Cambridge University," and that is a real sort of being a prick clickbait title. But if it wasn't for that title, that video wouldn't have got as many views. And I think the the content of that video was so valuable, which is why people shared it a lot, and sort of it it seemed to really really kind of help them. Actually, I want to put a pin on that because I think it's the same thing when I watch you and your brother talk, and then. And then I remember there was this one part where, like, what your like your brother is worried about you being internally boastful, and then you ask him like, what's the difference between confidence and what's the other one, like being a arrogance, and and I I, and I just think that like he's just casting a judgment on you where like you don't need to accept it. Yeah, maybe, but I I think I think I care a lot about how I come across, and I wouldn't want to come across as arrogant because that's negative. But I would want to come across as confident. And hey, I know I actually know the perfect solution for you. Okay, I'm gonna uh, you put put a put a note to put a note to ask me again. But there's this book basically uh, by this guy. Uh, it's from um, it's called the Great CEO CEO Within. Uh, and and uh, he is a CEO coach, basically for Nabal Ravikant and uh, uh, you know a bunch of people in the big Silicon Valley scene. Uh, but there was this one part I remember reading about the book. It's like there's four ways of being uh, boastful but come across humbly. And one of the ways that I can remember right now was that um, you always want to say how hard you work for that thing and who helped you along the way. Ah, oh, okay. Before you say the the big number thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I think that's a big part of how to make this video work. Yeah. So I, I, I can only remember one thing, but if you were to come back to me, I would be able to give you a point in the right direction or co- copy and paste in the text for you. Ooh. No, I mean, I'll buy the book. This sounds like a good book. Oh, it's a great book. Oh, you should totally get it. I mean, it's like one of the best business book I've uh, read so far. Yeah. Nice. And actually, so uh, on that note, I've, I'm... I'm thinking about doing a new series on YouTube called like uh, Book Club, where I kind of talk about uh, highlights and personal reflections from all these popular books, because I think there's a lot of untapped potential out here because like there's so much golden information that's siloed within books 
and within like scientific papers that people like you and me would read, but actually most of the world wouldn't bother reading a book called The Great CEO within. But I think there's probably lessons from that book that can be applied to life in general, not just necessarily for business. And this and is where the, think, the illustrator yeah. and the animator come in. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I was thinking. That it would be really good to be able to illustrate stories like while also me talking to the camera, but then also have animated stories. I don't want to have, because there are some videos that are entirely animation, like pure whiteboard drawings and stuff. I don't want it to be like that because I think there is value in having a personality on camera, explaining stuff and sharing the personal, personal reflections. But I think there is a lot of value add in being able to illustrate concepts from these books. Yeah, can I also say that like, um, one thing that I really like that you do on your videos, especially I watched the ones where you buy, a, uh, you know, I think you're talking about a new iPhone or a new airport, is that, is that you talk about analysis of, it's not even about a tech product, right? I think, I think the, a small part of it is that, and I think a big part of it is like, you try to bring in this broader concept uh, into a, a buying decision that most people will be tempted to buy. And yeah, you're not yeah. trying to argue with them like, hey, you should buy it or you shouldn't buy it. But you say, here's how I think about it. And here's all the analysis I went through. And I think that's like, that like one way of bridging that gap of like, how can you apply this knowledge into a just real world everyday decision that you want to make? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's, that was the angle I tried to go in to make my tech reviews a bit more unique because not many other people were doing that. Uh, okay, I want you to rant on this clear ghost thing. Because you, like, many times, like, people come to you and it's like, oh, you know, how do I learn this thing? Or what, what other questions that people come to you about? And then you just hammer in on this, look, you just need to have clear goals. Like, I think it's interesting. I think I want you to rant a little bit about that. I also want you to rant about the genesis of that, of, like, was there a point when you didn't have clear goals and how did that affect you differently versus how when you had clear goals and how difference in terms of speed it is or... Oh, uh, is, how is it better? So that's interesting because I actually don't do clear goals at all. Um, I, I'm, I more kind of rant against the idea of having goals, but I, I, I'm also not. I, I'm also not really sure how to think about it. So I'd be curious to get get your thoughts about this. But yeah, go for a toilet break. I'll go for I'll go for a wee as well, and then we can we can hash it out about goals. All right. Yeah, goals. So I don't know how valuable goals are because, um, like. There's, there's sort of two, two viewpoints on this. Number one is that it's really important to set clear goals, smart goals, you know, set a goal for everything and work towards that goal. And even if you don't hit that goal, then it's fine because you'll at least have been working towards it. Um, and they should be smart. They should be specific, measurable, actionable, realistic, timely, blah, 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 all the stuff about goal setting. And then there's the other point of view that people like Jason Fried and DHH at Basecamp would kind of espouse which is that, well, goals are kind of a bit, a bit pointless. You know, as long as you're moving in, in the direction that you want to move in and you're enjoying what you're doing, then who cares about having an arbitrary revenue goal or an arbitrary goal for how much money you want to make? Or, you know, just don't, don't think about goals. Think about just kind of doing what, what you enjoy and what makes you happy. And putting a number to it is a bit pointless because let's say you hit a goal, then fine, you, you hit the goal and then you just move the goalpost. And let's say you don't hit a goal, then you're feeling bad because you haven't hit a goal. And it's just a way of making you, you, feel, you feel bad. And I've yet to figure out which of those sort of viewpoints I want to I wanna actually move forward with. I, I lean naturally. I might have a, a theory that with both that um, viewpoints together. Oh, interesting. Right. Tell me more. Because I really have no idea where to, <laughs> where to go with this. So I think people who don't have goals have a goal. Okay. So their goal, 
so I let's talk at talk with Jason Fried. Uh, so who's that? Jason Fried and who's the other guy? Uh, DHH, uh, David Hanamar Hansen. They're the founders of a company called Basecamp. Yeah. Yeah. So he, they both run uh, uh, Basecamp, right? So I I think th- their goal um, uh, is actually enjoying the process. So they do have a goal. I will argue that, and and because if their goal is enjoying the process, then they need to remove um, obstacles, which is revenue number matrix, that hinder them from achieving that goal of enjoying the day-to-day uh, operation of um, Basecamp. I suppose, I suppose, kind of enjoying the process is technically a goal. I I I think it just depends on how you define them, right? Enjoying the process is a goal, but. It's not specific, measurable, achievable, realistic time. It's, it's, it's not like a classic smart goal where people say, oh, your goals should be numerical. Um, it's not like they're doing a you know, happiness analysis of themselves and, and stuff. It is. It can be smart. You could just like every day, you ask yourself, well, do you enjoy the day? Yeah, okay. And if your goal is to enjoy the day and everything else is secondary, then actually it doesn't really matter what your goals are and what your revenue growth is and hiring more people because you're enjoying the process and it's fun and it's all good. Exactly. Does it resolve that tension for you? Do you think like that? Um, well, it's not tension; it's not the right word, but you know, it resolves that oxymoron or the dichotomy or the what is the paradox? I guess. Uh, so, partly the other the other part of the paradox is let's say when it comes to, I don't know. Uh, so I've I've been working with a business coach, and he says that you should always have some kind of numerical goalpost for, I don't know, views or subscribers or revenue and stuff like that. And his, his point is, let's say you want to get a million subscribers by the end of the year. You know, just having that goal means that you'll be doing things that help you get there. And then even if you don't hit a million subscribers, let's say you hit 800,000, you'll still be pretty happy with that, right? Whereas my view of it is that, yeah, but I sort of want to not think about the numbers at all because I know that's sort of just bad for my own enjoyment. I actually just want to have a system whereby I'm able to churn out two videos a week and I think they're valuable and I, I don't want to track the metrics. Uh, well, there you go. You're hiring the wrong person. <laughs> because if the person don't, don't know that and don't agree with you on that, everything else that he's going to say after that is going to be not what you agree with and you won't follow it and you're just wasting money and time on this person that and advice that you won't follow. And in fact, your goal is that. I want to enjoy making videos. And if every day I can come back home and say, I really enjoy the process. And sure, if the number of subscribers is part of that goal, go for it. But it's not. Yeah, it's really not. (laughs) Like, I actually don't care about number of subscribers. There you go. Okay. So my goal is I want to enjoy the process. And and the goal is also sort of, I, I I want this to make money. But it is making money. It's making more money than I know what to do with and it's just it's just kind of growing by default so I don't need to worry too much about like oh we need to optimize for subscriber growth this this quarter and, and stuff like that correct 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 I'll, I'll give you I'll give you another example uh, and I actually wrote a blog post about this okay it is it is basically like the kid in the candy store or the pickup artist who is like going out to the clubs and trying to get late more uh, it's the same as the chef who you know after starting one restaurant um he or she wants to open another one. What they forget, each of them, the chef forget that what they really want is to see the sparkle in someone's eyes when they eat the food. And they, and they forget that 
being in they, 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 she can't split herself up into two locations right she can only be there to see the sparkles in the person's eyes one percent at a time so opening up the second thing is exactly the same problem as moving the goalposts because everyone do that hence i do that right i'll give you another example yeah. of the the kid in the candy store eating too much candy actually lets you less enjoy the candy Mm. And there's repercussion after that. So, like, if, if, that's, if you like the process, the pickup artist like the process of picking up, like, well, well, go, go, by all means, like, go for it. But, like, yeah. once you know how to play the game, you can see patterns. It's like, it's like, you know, like, you play that, any stupid PlayStation game, you all, you start out, and then you have this emphoria, you learn some skills, and you can use this powers, and then it gets harder, and then da da da, and then, uh, and then you finish the game. And then, and then again, you're gonna buy another CD, another game, and it's gonna be the same journey. You know what you're signing up for. Like, do you yeah. want to go on that journey? Is that meaningful for you? Like, is getting like another five hundred thousand subscriber meaningful for you? If it's no, then like, yeah, then not. don't do it. Like, I'm I, I'm thinking in my head, it would be nice, but it's not inherently meaningful because with more subscribers comes more revenue growth, and that means that there's career is more safe and. And all this sort of stuff. But actually, if I just focus on the actual goal, which is enjoying the process and sort of secondarily keeping this sustainable, then it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what subscriber growth. Yeah. In fact, uh, in fact, if you fire that business coach, it might save you some money. So, yeah, <laughs> 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 no, he, he's actually he, he's, he's doing it pro bono. So it's, uh, oh, okay. it's good to have that. Well, time. Save time then. Save time. Yeah, true. But it's, 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 it's actually been useful in the sense that he's helped sort of basically draw diagrams of what all the different aspects of the business are and thinking of it more as a business and setting up an organizational chart and all these things that sort of make sense once you say them. But I just hadn't really appreciated all of the different stuff that goes into running this business and kind of where we need to hire people to sort of fulfill the roles that I personally don't want to do myself. And that's exactly the Mexican story, right? Yeah. The Mexican fisherman story that you, you just want to do. Yeah, true. <laughs> I just want to make videos, man. I don't want to deal with editing. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Wait, so does, so does it come full circle here with the goals thing? Um, I think so, yeah. I think thinking about it as enjoying the process is a valid goal because I guess previously I would have thought that enjoying the process isn't a valid goal. Um, because it felt like, oh, that's kind of a bit of a cop-out. But I suppose if that's the goal and everything else is secondary to that, then... But, but, but even then, I think I'm, I'm worried that this sort of strategy is too, it's too easy. It's like too much like, like resting on my laurels. For, exa- for example, when you make... For example, when, when making YouTube videos, every creator hates the process of coming up with a title and a thumbnail coming up with the title and the thumbnail is arguably just as important as the content of the video. We spent all our effort, you know, making a really good 20 minute long video and then no one clicks on it because we got the wrong thumbnail, the wrong title. And then people who are in this space say that you should look at your analytics and you should figure out what the optimal thumbnail is for you. And you should track your click through rates and your impressions and blah, 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 blah. And that's just not an inherently fun aspect of it. But I know that I should care more about thumbnails, but I just don't, I just actually don't care, but I know I should care because that would lead to more more growth of this thing uh, parable to that is yeah if you a b if you go about a b testing every website yeah it will just turn to a pawn site oh 
Yeah. So That's so the goal the goal is actually how can you create a reputation and a promise for people to expect a quality or a thing that they want. So this is why we call mm. true fans, right? So yeah. you don't need to go about shouting to them or take off your clothes to yeah. be able for them to want to watch the things you do. Ah, yeah, that's true. Like people like Matt Diavello don't use clickbait titles. They just use simple, like the two minute rule. And people know it's going to be a good video. So therefore they watch the video regardless of what the title is. It's not like this one rule will change your life in caps lock. It's just like, you know, <laughs> the two minute rule. <laughs> yeah. But because he has already built up that reputation and uh, through making promise, delivering them, making promise, delivering them, and you know what to expect. And I think the goal here, uh, and I, maybe it's a bit of a projection, but I think what you really want is the question of who would miss you if you're gone? Yeah, I think that's something I've sort of been thinking about as well. Like there's this channel called Video Creators that give YouTubers advice on how to kind of grow the channel and stuff. And what it, like the, the, the very first point they talk about is figure out who your, like figure out your sort of ideal ideal viewer avatar like you know what are their hopes and dreams what are they like what are they not like what sort of person are they and then think about how you can make content for that person and that doesn't mean that you're watering down your message or anything or you can't appeal to other people but it's just that you know who you're you're creating content for and therefore it guides your strategy or guides the things that you want to do yeah and you can change these people you know once you finish you you saw like great artists do this all the time right where they are like they sing a certain genre and then, like, the next album, they're, like, totally different. Like, what the heck? Yeah, true. Like, Taylor Swift's, you know, country going to pop music. and Exactly. And, and she, her thing might be, uh, look, I know, what, I know you might want country. And that, that, is what, that, that was what, uh, what the last five albums might be for. But here I am. I'm embarking on a different journey. If you want to join me, follow if you don't want, here's the last five album. Go listen to that. Knock yourself out. Oh, yeah. That's a good way of thinking about it. I'm embarking on a journey. If you want to follow, then come along. If not, then that's fine as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Done. Done. Sorted. All right. This is the conundrum <laughs> resolved. Thank you. Okay. So I think let's, we should gig out about dating, I think. Uh do you want to give me some context on like how many like like before I ask those questions? Uh, like, what sort of dates have you been on so I can know a bit of exper- uh, your your past experience before like throwing you a whole bunch of questions? Okay, cool. Um, so let's think. At university, I went on maybe three or four first dates. One of them turned into like a sort of one month long relationship. Another one turned into like a five month long relationship. One of them turned into like a two-week-long relationship and a few of them didn't really go anywhere. And then after university, I've been on a handful of first dates and a few second dates, but none of them have really gone anywhere. So knowing you, <laughs> how, do you how do you go about learning dating? Uh, so I've read all the books, obviously. You know, from, you know, start, so starting with the game and then uh, looking into the mystery method back in the day and then Models by Mark Manson in 2008, I think, or whenever it was. That, that, that's like my favorite one uh, The Art of Seduction by Robert Greene um, then later Kickassery by the Charisma on Command people who, who did what they're now called which, which wasn't really a pickup book it was more like a general confidence charisma type book um, 
And then I discovered like the red pill stuff like in secondary school. And that was interesting. Oh, is it RSD stuff? Uh, so, sort of the RSD stuff, but there's also, uh, have, have you come across the red pill? Uh, is it a blog website? If I'm not wrong, it's, I think I might have. It's, it's like a subreddit, which is sort of like full of, yeah, it's, it's got a lot of like these like men's rights activist type people on it. And it's, 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 it's interesting from a, like, you know, I take, I take like an, uh, an armchair expert view on, on, on this whole stuff. Like, you know, I enjoy reading about it, but I don't, you know, I'm not going to actually like feasibly put a lot of it into practice. Um, but it's just like an, an, an area of interest for me. So, so I've, I've read most of the literature in the, in the space and, but, but in terms of applying it across the board, there are only a few things that I've really taken away from it that, that I've actually applied in real life. But so, so like going through like this multiple short relationships, um, do you have a, a, a process of learning about it yet? Or you just sort of like, Oh, I just, I'm just going to pay for Tinder, you know, and then we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly I'm just going to pay for Tinder and we'll see how it goes. Uh, I haven't read a lot about sort of the dynamics of relationships, but I guess I've, I've not really been in a relationship with someone that's lasted long enough to worry about that. It's always been something or other, like either I lost interest very quickly or they lost interest very quickly or some like logistical issue that meant that it just didn't, didn't get to a point where I feel like there would have been any gains in me learning about this sort of stuff. I feel like it was so very, very early stages where it's still based on like attraction and value and connection and all that stuff. Got it. Uh, why did you wanted to pay for Tinder? Or what have you, actually, what, app, what, what apps have, have you used? Because uh, I haven't paid, so I'm just like, maybe I should pay. What? Oh, okay. Yeah, I think you should definitely pay. So I, I pay for Bumble, Tinder, and Hinge. And I've used all three. Uh, oh, like Lifetime? Or you pay for Bumble? Yeah, I, like paid for, I, paid for, I paid for Bumble Lifetime. <laughs> oh my God, I was like tempted. <laughs> <laughs> because no but like ultimately it was it was just an argument of time right like i don't want to spend time swiping through people i'd i'd love to i'd just love to see who already likes me and then i can swipe on them if i like them back purely purely as a, as a time-saving exercise mm. and do you, well, then why like all these apps like why don't you just like focus on one i think if i were to pick one it would probably be hinge because like each of the each each of the, the the different apps seems to have a different sort of demographic of people that it appeals to. Like Tinder has a very kind of hookup culture, but you know there's people that I know who are on Tinder who are very much looking for a relationship rather than hookup culture. Yeah, Bumble my friends are getting married relationshipy. too. Oh really? Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Bumble. Bumble is it's a bit more relationshipy, but the girl has to initiate, and therefore that's a different dynamic. Hinge is a lot more relationshipy and. But it's it's a lot more effort to go through people on, bum, on, on Hinge because you really have to think about what you like about someone rather than just swiping. So I feel like different sorts of people use different sorts of apps. And given that, you know, <laughs> I want to optimize for uh, meeting the right person. You need to do that. You could just light. You could just stand and light. Yeah, but it feels it, true. But it feels a bit of a cop out. Like it's if you actually like someone, it would make a lot more sense to it would sort of send a like in a way that helps initiate the conversation rather than just send a like, which is a bit of a cop out. So I feel like it's a lot more effort, but then I haven't really gone on these apps much in the last few months just because I haven't, it's, it's so low on the priority list of things to do with my time. And I've had so little free time that I just know that it's just, it's not really going to be feasible. Mm. So, oh, so in any case you have, you have, you took the back seat on the dating thing and just like you'll come when it comes. But you, I mean, you, but you pay for it, you know, like, so it's kind of that too. 
yeah i mean i vaguely keep track of the people who like me and if i get a new notification i'll see who it is but like you know as is the case in the in, in most of the dating things chances are if someone likes you you probably don't like them back on average statistically and vice versa so it's rare to find someone who likes me who i also like back just based off, off their profile and it's a quite a lot of uh sort of activation energy for me to like someone back and initiate something with them because given that i have so little time on my hands i know that okay that would be an evening gone kind of going but out to dinner with this August. person well, yeah, exactly. So after August, then I'm going to be like full on this. But <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, cool. I I think um, uh, I think the last question on the dating thing would be like, well, like friend zone, you know, like so you like I saw one of the, one of the roles that you've been friends on. Like, do you have anything, or have you picked out anything that has been worked for for you so far on the friend zone issue? Yeah. Um, so there've been. So a lot of the girls that I've liked in the past have been people that I have been friends with first and then liked kind of secondary to that. Um, I think there was only one that I've, I've properly liked for whom I was like, oh my God, love at first sight. The rest of them have always been sort of a little bit like, oh, well, okay, I guess we're friends. And then, oh, actually, she's quite pretty. And, you know, just those feelings developing over time. Um, I don't like the concept of a friend zone because it, it feels almost like there is some sort of onus on the girl to like me back just because I'm friends with her, which is a bit weird. Um, I also think that in, in a lot of spheres, like especially amongst the people that I, I, I hang out with. So if it's, for example, very like Muslim people or very Christian people or very conservative people, you know, stuff like that. All, these, all, like, all of these people would prefer to find someone who they're already friends with. Like, you know, the friend zone is where the magic would happen. Whereas it's, it's, it's a lot less of a thing. Like, you know, most of my friends wouldn't like the idea of someone coming up to them in a coffee shop and, you know, blowing them off their feet or whatever the phrase is. <laughs> um, whereas they would love the idea of that kind of, oh, you know, I'm, I'm friends with someone, we've known each other for a long time, and then we've both realized we've actually got feelings for each other, and then we get married. Like, that's very much the dream narrative for the sorts of people that I, I hang out with. And so I don't really view the friend zone as a sort of concept because that, that is how most of the relationships that I know of have begun, like through people being friends and then liking each other and and that associated stuff. But, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm curious about you now. So like, w- what's been your experience of the relationshipy things and what, what sort of insights have you, have you gained? Oh, so much. Uh, wow. I don't know where, where should I start? Well, let's start from the, from the fo- uh, foundation. Um, let's talk about love, right? Um, modern love. Um, most people, when they say love, is modern love. And modern love is really just attachment, in other words. If I say I love you and you say you're going to love me back, that's just attachment. So real okay. love is really hard to find. Real love is like what your mom uh, uh, gave to you, right? And yeah. when you have real love, you say, yeah, 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 I get it, you know? And then, but when mm. strangers give you real love, uh, unconditional love, you're like, well, what do you want from me? So, so, so putting a footnote to that, it's okay to have modern love and have attachment and it's kind of how the world works you gotta just trust each other and so on that note firstly to understand that what you're engaging in is actually uh, uh, modern love and the reason why actually I, at least I think the reason why most people want to be in a relationship or how I um, think about it is that there's a lot of uh, energy required to find a new person and uh, all the best relationships are long-term, right? Because they know your preference, they know your values. Uh, and, and on that note, on values is, if your values line up, the small things don't matter. So, in, so if there's a huge weight and emphasis on values, 
there's huge importance of knowing what your values is and being able to articulate them and being able to have a integrated uh, value system. Um, and so that's number one. So f- figure out yourself first. Like what are your values that, that you want? And then on that note on uh, meeting um, um, women or, or of the opposite sex, whatever sex you, you like, uh, the two things I look out for, I used to have like so much. And the two things uh, I look out for is um, energy and engagement. So engagement is, uh, am, I, am I talking to you and am I engaged or do I just want to look at my phone? And uh, energy is, do I get, am I more calm and I, do I have more energy in the interaction than before uh, I went into the interaction? Oh, okay. Uh, I'm writing this stuff down because this is good stuff. Yeah. So, so that's kind of, yeah, go for it. Go pull up. <laughs> Firstly, what do you mean by values? Like surely broadly, everyone has the same values. Like, you know, I want to be a good person. I want to help people. And, you know, like in, in what way feasibly are the values that you, of people that you meet different to your own? Yeah. So I, yeah, I call, I actually call them foundational values. So values basically a set of things that I've looked very, very carefully at and I've chosen to be part of my life and values shouldn't be easy. Uh, because if being easy is a value, then you know it's just about everyone would would just be lazy. laziness would be a value. So technically, value should be something hard, a set of things that's hard that you find valuable that you have looked at very carefully and you have wanted to say this will be part of me for the rest of my life. Okay, so can you give me an example? So I'll, I'll, let me just pull it up because I actually. Um, I actually uh, thought a lot about this uh, because the, remember I told you about the day I um, went for a mini retirement and got really depressed? Yeah. So basically, I, I basically just argue against every single value that I hold dear. So one thing, for example, humble, you know, being humble, like, well, why, why do I want to be humble, right? And then I just argue against that. And if I can't, I don't have a very good logic reasoning about uh, 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 humbleness or humility, I need to drop it basically. And by dropping it, it just makes my life a lot easier. So I'll give you an example, uh, perhaps honesty, right? Honesty is a big value of mine. And honesty basically means that I just want to be able to be me. I never want to be in an environment around people where I have to watch what I say, because if I disconnect uh, from what I'm thinking, from what I'm saying, then I create multiple threats in my mind. And that means I'm no longer in the moment. And that means I now have to be future planning or past regretting every time I'm talking to someone. And that also means that I'm just wasting energy. So part of it just means that I want to be free. And part of being free means that I can say what I think and think what I say. So this way I can be highly congruent and integrated and I can live my life without contradiction. So Richard Feynman, the famous physicist, famous said that you know you should never ever fool anybody and you're the easiest person to fool. So the moment you tell someone something that's not honest, you lie to yourself and then you start believing your own lie and then you disconnect you from reality and take you down the wrong road. And so in a sense, it's very important for me to be honest. But that also means that I don't go my way out to volunteer negative or nasty things. Um, so I'll combine radical honesty with an old rule that Ron Buffett have, which is to praise Gen, uh, criticize generally and praise specifically. So this way, if I have a criticism of someone, then I don't criticize the person. I criticize the general approach or the class of activities. And, but if I have to praise someone, then I always find a person who is the best example of why I'm praising and praise that person specifically. So that way, uh, people's ego and identity, which we all have, don't work against me. They work for me. 
So that would be an example of honesty and I, me defending that value. So was that like a prose that you've written up for yourself or what? Yeah. So I literally spent a month and like doing Groundhog Day and like arguing with everything I hold dear and uh, writing that. Wow, interesting. And do you think that was a valuable exercise to spend time doing? It is foundational. It, it, I will be carrying this like throughout my entire life. Oh, awesome. It just relieves so much weight, you know. Uh, 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 an example might be, you know, like say for example, your brother cares about you being a humble person, right? And then now you're just like, well, actually, I really thought about this very carefully. And to me, I don't really care about this so much. So, well, you can think all you want. It's okay. So you don't spend the extra like 10 minutes, like, you know, bugging you. Okay. So honesty is one of your foundational values. Can you just like talk me through the others? Have you got like a list or are they? I, I do. So then I want to be in- integrity, right? So integrity basically means that I want to be trusted. And uh, part of it means that I'm able to act on what I say. And for that, I need to have a ground knowledge of what I'm saying and be very specific on it. And so then I'm able to differentiate. I need to be able to differentiate an assumption, uh, an aphorism uh, to a fact of life. So this allowed me to be accurate when making plans and prediction. And then I can get uh, what I want, not just wishful, idealistic thinking. So that way, when I can make promises and do those promises, people then can trust my words. And then, I, and, and then ironically, the understanding rooted in fact also helped me manage difficult situations, like my own death. So that would be another one uh, of integrity. Uh, and then there's like peer relationship, there's no anger, no jealousy, um, there's no short-term dealing or, or thinking, there's positivity. Uh, so after going through a whole bunch of that, then I wrote a poem uh, uh, for it, just for, for my own enjoyment. And so I, can, I am always very happy when I recite this to people, then people can because of the consistency bias, I need, to be, I need to uphold the version of myself that I want to leave out most. Okay, what's the, what's the poem? Can you, can you read it out? Yeah, 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 sure. Uh, so uh, it's called uh, The Life and Lessons of um, Brian, and uh, aka The Long Mission Poem. Um, I live honestly without contradiction to fool no one and myself, to find a nuance from an assumption and aphorism to a fact of life, to see reality as it is and always be a fool to the truth. I redefine possibilities, first for myself, then for the world, because I'm a little crazy, because good enough isn't, because what I do says who I am. I see the good from the person beside me to the things that happen to me. In changing my perspective, I give others a new story. I play long-term games because the best return in life comes from compounded interest. In love, in relationship, in wealth and health. I find the courage to run from the cynic and the angst, to admit my flaws and stand up for my truth, to do the right things when no one is looking, and to do it all over again tomorrow. To live my life with fun, ecstasy, brilliance, proactivity, and above all, integrity. Nice. That's really good. That like made me like shiver a little bit when you said the, the sort of stuff in the middle. Yeah, so uh, uh, if you are thinking of doing it, I, I highly recommend it. Um, yeah, but it requires just a lot of sitting down, doing nothing, and just journaling and journaling and journaling and writing and writing and writing. And your end, your smart goal could be, I'm going to write a poem uh, like Brian did. <laughs> yeah, true. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's just something I've, I've never really thought about properly, but you've convinced me that it's, it's legit. So I'll start having a think about that. Well, right on. I think that is the end of that. Thank you so much for 
I mean, it's such a fun conversation talking to you, really. Yeah, no, this has been really good. Uh, the, there was one thing that I haven't got around to asking you yet. Oh, yes, is, go for it. Go ahead. Yeah. Tra- I'm done. Traveling. Yeah, go for it. So when it comes to traveling, things that I'm worried about, I'm worried that I won't make friends on the road. And everything basically stem, stems from that. So, like, <laughs> can you give me a rant about that? Uh, I would say that's an assumption. Is that right? Yeah. I, I, um. No, it's 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 a it's a concern. Okay, but it's it's an assumption of a, a concern that, but it, there's also an assumption. It's an uh, yeah, it's a, it's an assumption, definitely not a fact. Yeah. Okay, so I would say go test it out. So go take a one week trip solo in a backpacking hostel and see if you actually don't or do make friends. Because everything else that I'm going to tell you, you know, you might even don't even need all these things that I'm going to tell you. Um, but if you do, I'm going to share with you a couple of things that I do to make friends. Okay. Sweet. Uh, well, firstly, couch surfing. You know, you're going to stay with a host. Um, 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 so you could, you could take the money you save from Airbnb and buy a really nice gift or, you know, do an activity with the host. So by default, you already need to make friends. Yeah, you're already winning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then secondly is, is um, hostels. Uh, so you, 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 you might not want to stay in the, like, the shittiest of the shit hostel. You, you want to like, pay a bit more and have like, the hostel where you have curtains. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. Those around. Like, they're, co- they're like, kind of the capsule hotel um, uh, hostel format, but instead of it being a real capsule, it's just like curtains. Uh, and there's like, tons of this around. And I think just by hanging out around um, the lobby area, um, puts you in a situation where you can meet a lot of people. And um, I would also go... So, so, so firstly, the situation environment. So pick the right one. So don't, do not do a camper van trip because you'll be alone. I did that. Regret. <laughs> um, and, and, then, and then last of all, just like, hey, how's it going? The magic words. Hey, how's it going? The magic words, yeah. That's it. Oh, and then where are you from? You know, what you do? Or what are you doing here? How many days of a trip uh, you're at already? Where have you been? I'm new here. Um, you know, here's my itinerary. Oh, what's good to eat? Um, well, everything. Just like, ask for help. Oh, one mantra to, to, to remember. How to make friends. Asking for help and giving help. There's no way, other, no way around other else to make friends. Okay, asking for help and giving help. That seems easy enough. Does that, does that like, like, you know, do you still have concerns after that? <laughs> no, I think, uh, I, I think it's mostly just that sort of irrational fear of what if I won't make any friends. But like, realistically, like in a, in a hostel, everyone's out to meet new people. Everyone's chill. Everyone's nice. And yeah, I, I, I can't imagine it would be a problem, but it's just something that's sort of in the back of my mind is that, oh, what if, what if it's really lonely and stuff? No, I think, I, I, I think the value of long-term travel is that you will enjoy the silence and you enjoy time with yourself and I think that's one of the super valuable things that I took out from my long-term travel because I have friends who cannot do lunch on themselves who cannot watch a movie alone you know and 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 they are playing they are playing life as a game um, where they are scared of doing things alone hence they are always with the pack Hence, they are, they have way more mimetic, um, um, uh, uh, you know, problems that they have because they want to do things with the culture. And I don't think you have that problem when you're like an entrepreneur. You're just like, well, who the hell cares about doing things that way? I'm going to do it my way, right? 
Yeah. I think more so the concerns is not having the friend you want to make. So the concerns would be having too many high buy friends, wanting to make actual real friends. And I think that concern could be solved with your interviews. Go interview Nobel laureates, you know? Yeah. Or people that are interesting that you meet on the road. So you start, you could start having, having this list of interesting people that you want to talk to when you're at their city and start sort of writing down a list and then uh, just like going out like, hey, you know, like you're really interesting, blah, blah, blah. And ask, remember, ask for help. I'm coming to wherever you are. Is there like a must-do thing that, you know, is underground? You know, yeah, and then and then they help you. It's a simple enough question, just a recommendation. And then when you're there, you could take a photo of the place you've been to, or say, "Hey, I'm here. Like, do you want to go together? You know, I would love to have a meal with you." Blah blah blah. And I think that that's a way to go about making friends that you like their work and their personality. Okay, yeah, uh, that's interesting because like through through the YouTube thing, I've gotten to know a lot of people like online. Uh, and sort of random people I've met on Twitter. And I was, I was thinking, you know, rather than traveling to a random ass place, I'm, I might as well go to the place where I know this person is. And, you know, just be like, hey, I'm around. Do you want to meet up if you're free? If not, cool. If so, then yeah, let's hang out. <laughs> I think that would, be, that would be fun. Yeah, I think that's kind of all I have with making friends. I think you're, I don't think that's even a problem that you need to worry about. All right. Awesome. That's- Anything else on traveling? No, I think, I think that was it. Um, I will uh, hit you up when I've, when I've taken my one week long to test trip with more specific questions. But yeah, <laughs> I think at the moment it's more, about getting, it's more about getting in the reps than trying to optimize. Perfect. Well, thank you so much again for your time. And oh, thank you for your time. This has, been, this has been fun. Perfect. I'll see you when I do. It's been a pleasure. All right. What's up, people? It is over. As usual, all show notes, links, and books can be found on the website, brianvictor.com, Brian for Y. If you have any misfits you'd like to hear from, feel free to drop me an email. Thank you again for your time listening to this episode. I hope you guys have a fantastic week ahead.